Now, uh, first of all, you could hear the audience kind of ooing and aahing. You, you kind of, you know, a film is good uh, by the way the, the noises the audience makes. Well, pretty you? much in this kind of film, if the audience is uh, ooing and aahing, I know I'm all right. Mm -hmm. Do you, when you make, uh, for instance, when this film was completed, did you just put it in theaters, or do you screen it and test the reaction of the audience? Part of making a film for me is uh, when I finish my first cut, I show it to an audience and see their reaction. I'll go back and change it and then show it again, mm -hmm. and, and the audience is a big part of the film. What is the reaction you're after in, in this? particular film? Well, it's much the same as getting on a roller coaster. Uh, there's a big build-up to the first uh, time you go over the edge, and mm -hmm. when you do, there's no stopping it. Yeah. Now, I noticed uh, uh, Paul looked away and people were gasping. That's a favorable response as far as you're concerned? <laughs> Honestly, in this kind of film, you're dealing with something that the whole audience knows isn't real at all. Mm -hmm. uh, you know that there's no such thing as a monster from outer space. At least we haven't seen one in mm -hmm. the paper. And uh, <laughs> I want the audience to believe it. Yeah. When they see this, oh, my, my Lord, look at that. That's yeah. real. Yeah. Now, uh, do you have children? No. Now, assume you did, maybe an eight-year-old child. Would you send your eight-year-old child to see this film? I would evaluate my eight-year-old, uh -huh. and I would, I would ask myself, is, is the eight-year-old impressionable? And could they realize this is a fantasy film? It's really not very harmful, but it's frightening. Yeah. And if I thought so, sure. Sure. Hmm. If I was an eight-year-old kid, I'd want to see this movie immediately. Oh, yeah, I would no imagine. No matter what my parents said, yeah. I'd go right out and see it. I would imagine kids will be lining up around the equator to see this one. Right? <laughs> episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. Yep, a hundred episodes of us talking about movies that bombed in the movie theaters and us going back and seeing if they deserve a second chance. Brad, how are you this evening? I'm doing amazing, man. I had a great weekend and I was, I've been looking forward to this all weekend. Um, I live right outside of Kentucky, so it was, it was derby time and I look forward to that. And then all day today, which is Mother's Day, I was just looking forward to talking to you. So this is a, a cool moment. Like, I think, you know, 100 episodes is a, a good, you know, we're still going to keep going, but I, yeah. I think. It's, oh, so we're not it's, done? No, oh, no. Okay. it's always right. it, I think it's important to stop and reflect and, and see where you've been and where you're going. And, you know, I'm proud of the product that we've put together over the last two and a half years. So, you know, I want to celebrate it with you. Awesome. Yeah. I, I got to tell you, I was, I was doing a little reflection myself and going back and looking at the, the 99 episodes we did, uh, man, what a selection of bombs. I mean, we are all over the place, domestic bombs, international bombs. I think we covered, I don't know, every genre out there. It's it's pretty crazy. I'm I'm kind of proud of the movies we talked about, or at yeah, least the I, list we I came up with. I don't know if we've talked about a documentary, but um, I think that everything else is we're 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 good on. Yeah, that's we've true. done a mockumentary, a mockumentary. So that counts. Know. Can we put yeah. that in the documentary category? Yeah, sure. Okay, cool. Uh, well, I have, I I have a couple questions for you, so I'm just I'm just curious. So you and I have spent a lot of time uh, together each week watching a movie going back and talking about it. And and this is on top of all the movies that we watch anyways. 
So the first question I have for you, if you go back and look at that list of 99, what movie or movies would you have never watched if it weren't for the podcast? I probably never would have watched Brigsby Bear, to be perfectly honest with you. Really? I, e- even though Randy was repping yeah, for it pretty hard? I mean, it just didn't ever really seem to like appeal to me. And Randy recommends so many movies, and we watch so many movies, that it was just easy to always push that one to the back. And I probably would have kept doing that. And then we finally put it on the list. And you, know, you can go back and listen to that episode, but it is one of my favorite movies I've ever seen. It made me feel so much. It was so touching and so genuine. Um, but a, probably another one I was thinking about was writers of justice. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, I like Mads Mikkelsen a lot, but I probably wouldn't have, you know, made the leap to go and, and watch it. Um, again, you know, like I try to watch, you know, two or three, four movies a week. Um, and there's stuff that I haven't seen. There's stuff I want to rewatch cause I just got it on 4k or got this arrow edition or whatever. And it's just easy to push some movies to the back. And, and when you're kind of forced with this podcast to say, no, I have to watch it by Sunday so I can record and talk to it with Troy. It, it, it's really nice to at least have one of your movies. They're going to watch for the week picked out for you. Um, those two stand out quite a bit uh, to me. Um, I probably never would have watched cats either, but you know, <laughs> that's a different story. But your wife made us. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, I had a, so there were two that absolutely came to mind. Uh, the first one was solar babies. It, it was one of those <laughs> that I, I never saw it growing up in the eighties. It, it, it just looked like hot, hot garbage. And um, you, you picked it for, I think we were doing turkeys that month. Yep. And, and I don't know about you, all of the movies that we talked about, I made it a point to go out and find a copy of it. So for that one, there was a, I think a Blu-ray that I imported from Germany or something like that just to get it. Boy, that's, that's one of the movies I wish I never bought. Um, but I, I can honestly say I'm glad I saw it. You are right that it is with the right group a movie you put in and you can have a lot of fun with. Just don't watch it on your own. Um, it's kind of terrible. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Yes. The other one, which I know I would have never watched had we not picked it for the show was showgirls from episode 34. And I think that was the first time we had Jose on the show. And I got to tell you, if you had told me when we were doing the podcast that a, we were going to talk about showgirls, I'd been like, well, okay, maybe it's, it's one of those epic bombs, right? But if you'd followed that statement up and said, hey, I think you're really going to like Showgirls, I'd be like, man, you're crazy. Stop taking mm-hmm. crazy pills. I feel like Showgirls is going to be the episode where someone stops me on the street and says, hey, you're Brad from Not a Bomb. I watched Showgirls <laughs> because of you guys, and I actually liked it, just like you. And that's going to happen. I hope so. Because everyone, everyone comes to us with the Showgirls sort of uh, reexamination of that movie to – I mean, it, it was misunderstood at the time, but I think it's, I wouldn't say brilliant, but it does have some brilliance to it. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Like it's got some moments where you're like, wow, they were saying something. Yeah. I, I, I think, uh, the, the fact that there's a documentary about showgirls, uh, and the documentary is pretty good. I mean, that says something about, I, I think maybe the film, I mean, it's the whole premise of the podcast, right? Do we go back and reexamine the movies that bombed where they, 
did they should they have bombed or was it just released at the the wrong time mm-hmm. did it did it not find its audience for you know a couple decades later um that that's a classic you know i, I think version of it but yeah, yeah it's, it's probably 10 years too early you know we always see some of these films where we know when we're looking at the production stuff it's like hey we switched directors we had to bring on four new writers we did this we did that but some of them are just like oh this other movie came out or it was released a decade too early or a decade too late. It missed the wave. Um, yeah. Audiences weren't ready for it or something. Yeah, it, 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 and it's kind of, when you go back and look at that stuff, it, it makes sense. Obviously in the time, you don't know that, but uh, uh, my neighbor of, of mine, I was talking to at this derby party I was at and he was like, Hey, I, I was watching, I, I saw that you all did hot rod and hot rods, one of my favorite movies. And I went back and listened to you all. He's like, you're totally right. Like it just came out at the wrong time. And I was like, totally like it, it, you look at it now and it's a brilliant comedy, but at the time it was not a rated R uh, like rated R raunchy comedy. Um, so audiences weren't ready for it. Yeah, I agree. Well, I have another question for you about, um, the last 99 episodes. So so I'm really curious about this one. Was there an episode or episodes that kind of changed your initial opinion of a film, meaning you, you liked it. And then you went on the show and all of a sudden you're like, man, I don't, I don't like it anymore. Or you didn't like it, but you sat down and had a conversation with everybody and then turned around and said, you know what? I, I, I think I understand that film now. And, um, I have a new appreciation for it. Is it anything come to mind? Um, I, I would say I didn't, I'd never seen the movie before, but I just heard it was an absolute disaster. But when I watched it, absolutely loved it and could not understand even at the time why people didn't enjoy it. And that's heaven's gate. I think heaven's gate is one of the best Westerns I've ever seen. Uh, It's got a lot of amazing looking shots. Yes. It's three hours, but the performances are amazing. And that's one of those movies where you can't recommend it to everybody. Um, But I was expecting hot trash. Like I was expecting Ishtar level trash because <laughs> it, it is synonymous with bombs. Oh yeah. Um, and it wasn't anywhere close to what I was anticipating. I, I was glad Sammy was on that episode because he brought in a lot of extra meat to the conversation, uh, roast beef, if you will. Um, <laughs> and, uh, it, it really added to that. And I think, <clears throat> when we bring on people who will go to bat for a film, say a Jose or a Sammy or a Josh or a John, somebody who is really down for a movie, it's infectious. Yes. And I will at least see their side of it. I might not agree wholeheartedly with them, but I will at least understand where they're coming from. Showgirls was a lot like that. I did not understand showgirls at the level that's that Jose did. And when you hear him talk about it, you're like, Oh man, I didn't, I missed this, this, and this, this movie is pretty brilliant. Sammy was kind of the same way with heaven's gate where it was like, we kind of had a, a subject uh, expert on the, on the show and he brought a whole other level, but I, I just had always thought like, no, this is like Ishtar level bad. And when I sat down and watched it, I'm like, Oh a, it looks amazing. That version that I have, uh, is that it? 
it's a criterion. It's criterion. Yeah. The, yeah. Yep. The criterion version, I think it's the 4k resolution. The 2k resolution looks amazing. Um, yeah. That, that's one where I think I was just expecting the worst and got the exact opposite. Um, but to, to really answer your question, I think the film that I came around on and even at the time thought it was trash, like really trash. Uh-huh. <laughs> but now I kind of, now that I've seen like way worse stuff and you're going <laughs> to laugh at me. I am. Is Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Oh like, my God. I think it's so bad that it, it might be kind of fun. What really Mortal Kombat yeah. Annihilation. Okay. Because we've like you, then you look at something that's really bad, like double dragon, double dragon, is a film that you look at Mortal Kombat Annihilation, you're like, oh, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. And actually, it's kind of fun. Double Dragon and some of these films that we've seen, even Ishtar, you're like, ah, Mortal Kombat is at least fun. Like, I would I'll watch Mortal Kombat again. I'll give you that. Yes. Double Dragon would be hard to sit through. Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Again, I'd probably put that in the Solar Babies category and go, I, I don't want to watch it on my own. But with you or, or other people, yeah, maybe. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, it's I not by that. Yeah. Like my boss's daughter. Oh, better than no. that. No. Yeah. yeah I mean, the best. It's better than that. You know, absolutely. all these movies, yeah. um, you know, and, and one more, I want to bring up, I had forgotten how almost perfect the perfect sequel predator two is like predator two is to the point where I'm like, I like predator one better because of the cast, but predator two is up there with, sequels that we need to appreciate way more. It's funny you say that. So I was looking at it in two categories, like which ones um, after the episode I just fell in love with. And then which ones after the episode or watching it that time that I go, I don't really like this as much anymore. And and you mentioned predator too. So that was episode 90. I had always liked it. I'd had fun with it, but talking about it with you and James from the Iron Sequel, I, I kind of found out, man, I really love that movie. Um, and and another one that comes to mind when I'm thinking about, I kind of liked it, but but we had a discussion, and it was The Blob. So that was episode 70. I, I had always enjoyed that film quite a bit. When Shout Factory released the Blu-ray, I'm like, you know, I got my DVD. I'm good. But because we picked it to review it, I'm like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the best copy or quality out of it. <laughs> And when we just spent that time talking about the film, I'm like, oh my gosh, I, this is like one of the best remakes ever done of a film. And then from in, in terms of like an eighties uh, spooky movie, it, it's, it's awesome. It's so much fun. The, the blob in the film, one of the films we will talk about tonight have a lot in common. Yes, I agree. Um, now on the, on the flip side of that movies that I had seen before, but were either picked by guests or picked by you, or even I picked it. And said, okay, well, I'm ready to revisit it. Uh, I kind of like this film. Sat down and watched it. And then we get on the show. I'm like, ooh, something happened. Like, not a big fan of that. The The first one I can think of is episode 41, Under the Skin. So we had a great discussion with Josh from the VHS Files podcast. But that, that second viewing just didn't do it for me. I, I actually found myself liking the film a lot less. And I, I know it's supposed to be transgressive. Um, it's, it's saying something, you know, from a social perspective or from a gender perspective, but I, all of a sudden I could just feel that pretension getting to me and visually after, after you see it and you go back and revisit it, you're like, 
I, I'm just not into this film at all. There's a couple of good moments to it, but good moments do not make an entire film good. So mm-hmm. that, that was one I struggled with. And then the other one, which um, I know you gave me a lot of grief of was uh, episode 37 with Brett. When we talked about sunshine, that second viewing makes all of those faults come to light, especially that back part, that third act. Yep. And man, I really just am not enjoying that film. The more that I watch it. And I know a lot of people love that film, but I'm telling you, I've, I've seen it. I don't know how many times, but I think that when we got around to talking about it for this show, I think there's my like seventh viewing or something. And on the seventh viewing, you're like, maybe this movie's kind of dumb. Like yep. <laughs> it just falls apart. So, uh, one film that I think got way worse. The second time I saw it was final fantasy, the spirits within. Oh yeah. Um, even out of the whole, Hey, these computer generated graphics are going to take over Hollywood and, uh, we're going to never have real actors again. They're all going to be these things. You look back on it. It's just a real boring movie. Yeah, I agree. Well, I'm curious. So the last time we sat down and kind of looked at a bunch of episodes might've been episode 50 or something, mm-hmm. uh, which we, we, we did a John Carpenter film, right? Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we had gone back and looked at the statistics because you and I behind the scenes keep track of the movies we do and where we land on them in terms of opinion as well as the guest. So how, how are we looking so far with 99 episodes on the stat board? Yeah, so you will you will remember that we have um, a hundred episodes or a hundred movies because in Mortal Kombat we did two. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yep. So we have a hundred. Um, <clears throat> so Troy, mm-hmm. you always give me such a hard time for being such a uh, negative Nancy. Yes. But I have given thirty-two bombs. And you have given 20 bombs. So, you know. Okay. You're still a negative not, Nancy. Not, yeah. But not as, not as much <laughs> not as, you know, as much I used the, to be. The gap is closing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also our guests, our guests, um, I think we've had guests on, what was it like? And it's kind of hard. We've had two guests every once. So I think we've had like guests on like 58 episodes. Okay. Uh, they've given 11 bombs. Oh. And they have given 47, not a bombs. And then we've had two or more guests, uh, which has happened seven times. Those have been two bombs and five, not a bombs. So, you know, for the most part, we are doing our job where we're saying, Hey, we think people need to go back and re-examine some of these movies. Um, it would be terrible you know, you, if we had like a hundred movies and turned around and said, well, 75 of them are bombs. No, we're, we're championing, I think, the right ones, right? For the most part, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we've had nine total bombs, which is whoever's on the show, it received um, all 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 bombs, and then we've had 52 uh, complete, uh, completely, definitely not not a bomb. Everybody was in agreement them. on that one. Okay. Yep, yep. Um, what do you say is our worst film that we have discussed? Worst defined by what? Just, I mean, the one you hated doing the most episode, not like recorded, but like the one movie you hated watching the most. Oh, we have. Because there's one that starts out for me. It's like pretty easy. I, I, I'm telling you, the boss's daughter was hard to get through. Of the one that comes to mind, that one was really hard to get through. 
that one i was gonna say boss's daughter and ishtar were probably my least favorite because yeah. ishtar you look at the people involved like my boss's daughter like i i'm, I'm assuming an ashton kutcher tara reed movie is gonna suck but you look at who's involved in ishtar and you're like oh this but this charles groden was at least in the camel thing the camel thing was funny charles groden was good it had it had two things in it, it but it had my boss's daughter of, nothing. <laughs> There's no, nothing. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, all right. What was your favorite? My you favorite. Favorite. Yeah. Uh, Besides Big Trouble, because like that's unfair. I. <laughs> that that's a tough one. I have so many favorites. I'll, I'll tell you two that come to mind, just simply because um, I'm I'm really big on pushing films that maybe haven't gotten a lot of love, even from a domestic perspective. So, you know, the movie we're going to talk tonight and even like big trouble in little China. uh, I think, I think a lot of people know about that film and it's one that while it bombed at the theater, it just caught on, right? It becomes a cult film, but there are a couple of films that I've always been championing. And I love the fact that when people will trust me and go, okay, I'm going to jump in there and they do it knowing there's going to be subtitles and then come back and absolutely love it. Uh, that makes me really happy. So, so the first one is the outlaws with Don Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the minute I saw that film, it was, I was pushing it on everybody I knew. And I like the fact that when we did that episode, there were a lot of listeners who had never seen it and came back and discovered Don Lee. And, and as a result are watching his other films and then just this year, bringing um, Josh on to kind of talk about Indian film. I, the minute I you know, saw The Man Who Could Feel No Pain, I fell in love with that film. And I am so happy that so many people reached out to us afterwards and said, oh my gosh, you're, you're right. That movie is so much fun. It's so good. And it now comes up in a conversation of like, yeah, I watched that a couple of times already. So those are probably my two favorites because a, the conversations I think were fantastic, especially, you know, Josh coming in and doing, um, Indian films with us. I learned so much about that. I mean, I was dipping my toes into it, but he, he blew us away, but I like those two because, um, we actually just kind of got to give notice to two films that I don't think anybody would ever watch unless we're out here kind of saying, Hey, you need to see these movies. What, What would you pick? It's hard. We've done a lot of great, great movies. Um, God, it's hard to say. Um, I mean, you're not wrong with the, like the man who feels no pain is a special movie. And it it is, it really is, is. It is the one where I'm like, if we never did this again, I'd be totally happy because people would be like, Oh, I watched that movie because of your podcast. Um, yeah, Brigsby Bear is another one that people talk to us all the time about. Um, Love and Monsters. Uh, yep, I know when yeah, we talked about Monst- that one. I was trying to think of the third one, and that's yeah. it. Like, those are the three films that I'm like, okay, we've 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 kind of done our mission. Our mission statement was like introduce films that didn't get any love, yeah. either critically or financially. And and you know, so with Saho, like we kind of bit the rules a little bit because you know it, it was this and that, but. The Man Who Feels No Pain is like a special movie that needs to be seen by anyone who likes genre film. Like, if I, you I like say film, like it, it, it touches so yeah. many genres. If you like movies in, and it's a perfect example of si- subtitles should not get in your way of enjoyment. Yeah. I, to be perfectly honest with you, I watched 
things with sub. I watch English movies with subtitles on now because many years of listening to music really, really loud has, <laughs> has made me go deaf. But um, so that doesn't bother any, me anymore. Um, and I get, you know, yeah, I, I, I keep going back to heaven's gate. Like it wasn't my favorite movie that we did, but I think the gap between what I thought it was going to be and what I got was probably the widest. Yeah. So I'm glad I watched it. And, and I'm like, I, I kind of am having this like itch to like, it's starting to get kind of springtimey here and the sun, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> it might be a good time to like watch heaven's gate again. Um, yeah, man. I, I look the last 99 episodes have been amazing and we've watched some amazing movies. We've watched some really bad ones, but for the most part, I'm super happy with the collection of movies that we've put together and what we have coming forward going forward i'm really excited to jump into those um it's been really special so i i do before we kind of talk about this week's film because we did put together i don't know something big for episode 100 uh, i do want to share a little bit of listener feedback um first i want to start because we we i just want to say thank you to everybody because uh brad and i never intended us to do a podcast and think that we would get more than 10 people listening this was our COVID project and it was a way for us to kind of go, well, let's just stop texting uh, for two hours during the day and spend two hours just talking to each other, record it, put it out there, see what happens. And probably my favorite thing about doing this is all the people that we've met and now interact with on a regular basis, other podcast shows, mm-hmm. other people. Um, nothing just makes me happier than getting a message from just somebody I don't know. And then we start talking about films and um, you're, you're just, you're, you're sharing a love for that hobby, right? So there, there was some, there was a lot of feedback that came through this week and I want, I want to kind of read some of it, um, especially from three people, but I'm going to start with these two. Alex had wrote us and said, congrats, glad I could be a part of the journey with the greatest wrestling film ever made. My favorite. (laughs) Was he on the wrestler? We didn't do the wrestler. No, no, no. He was on ready to rumble, which is the greatest wrestling. He's Mm. right about that. Yeah. So, uh, his favorite moment was the first time you had Jose and he blew me away with his knowledge and personality. As far as movies to review, I can't find the budget for it anywhere, but I haven't heard anyone talk about the outfit that came out this year. I love most of it. And it has the man Dylan O'Brien. Ooh. Yes. So Alex, that one's going on the list. Cause I think we even said, when we talked about love and monsters, anything with Dylan O'Brien, I'm just yeah. watching. Yeah. Uh, I had had that circled to, you know, definitely check it out. And I just saw that it's been released physically. So I will pick it up and we'll have it on the show at some point in time. Absolutely. Uh, here is some feedback that that was kind of interesting. And, and this is the type of feedback that we've gotten a lot throughout the year, especially on things like love and monster, manic feel, no pain, um, Brigsby bear. I, I can't even tell you how many people <laughs> told us that after the show, they went out and bought Brigsby bear. Cause it was at the think at the time, like $7, dollars Six ninety nine. Yeah. Yeah. So, this one is uh, we we got a message because we've made a lot of friends with other podcasts. And so there's a there's a great podcast out there called Raiders of the Podcast. They wrote in and said, I will be honest, as I'm listening to about 70 podcasts right now and I'm compelled to listen to each one from the very start, I am already years behind. I go through every podcast when I can listening to five episodes at a time. But I have to say that you guys deliver one of the best. And you did get me to buy Flashpoint. I mean, I have yet to watch it, but I own it. <laughs> hey. 
He also he owns a Donnie Yen film. You got to watch Flashpoint, man. You got to watch Flashpoint. <laughs> it's, it's well worth it. Yeah. So uh, I, I I love that. I love the fact that somebody listens to us, picks up a film, and I, I can't wait for for their review of Flashpoint. So I want to I want to highlight the next three um, pieces of email we got because I, I kind of went back and looked. These were the first three individuals I think to ever send us emails. And over the last two years, they have given us some amazing recommendations. So it didn't surprise me that these three individuals kind of wrote back to us when we were getting close to the hundredth to, to share some comments. So I want to start with Ben. So <laughs> Ben says, Hey bombers wanted to say thanks for discussing a scanner darkly. Finally, I did oh, want yeah. to say congratulations to the podcast for a hundred amazing episodes. I was keeping track of my favorite episodes, but they all have their moments from the discussions to the guests to the impressions, <laughs> the not a bomb podcast has it all. My favorite aspect of the show is the relationship between Troy and Brad. I love when you two agree, but love even more when you guys argue, keep up the great work. And I can't wait to hear the next hundred years. Thank you. Ben. hundred episodes. more, not a hundred years. I, you know, oh, yeah. at this point we might be around for hundred yeah. years. I don't know. Technology's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. He didn't say they're good impressions. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad he just said impressions. Impressions, yeah. Uh, we've done a lot, our fair share. Uh, I'm not proud of some we've, of them, but we've embarrassed ourselves. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but thank you, Ben. We we love yeah. all of the recommendations. We love the feedback. Um, we hope you're around for the next hundred years, giving us feedback um, and telling us what movies to talk about. So yeah, this next one is from, a lot. Yeah, this next one's from Chris. Um, Chris Chris Evans, the Chris Evans. Yeah. Um, hey, gentlemen. Captain America listens to our podcast. Does he listen to yours? Probably not. No. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, hey, gentlemen, wanted to send you an email letting you both know how much I appreciate the podcast. This is no lie. You are my favorite podcast out there. I call it the podcast where you come for the great film discussion and stay for the bad impressions. Ah, there it is. <laughs> ah, there it is. <laughs> I love your podcast and will always be a huge supporter. My favorite aspect of the show is Troy and Brad's relationship. It's fun to listen when you agree, but also when you don't quite see eye to eye. Cheers, and here's to another 100 episodes. Nice. Thanks, Chris. I, I think there's a theme here. Impressions, and when mom and dad fight. It yeah, can mom be a and fun. dad fight. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, last one is from Philip. Says, I want to congratulate you on your big 100th episode. I've been enjoying the podcast. Some of my favorites have been The Blob, Brainstorm, and Quick Change. Keep up the great work. I'm looking forward to listening to the thing. Uh, that's a great segue. And and thank you, Philip. We love all the emails you send. And what I love about Ben, Chris, and Philip specifically is sometimes we will announce what movie we're talking about. And next thing you know, we start getting um, texts or emails or messages with links to interviews. Um, these guys have sent us so much information mm -hmm. that kind of help us with the research behind the scenes. And there are things that I, I just didn't even know existed in terms of additional content or stories or, I mean, we've talked about this. I'm, I'm a big fan of the um, books that they make about the movies. And uh, these guys are, are quick to point out, hey, did you know that, you know, there was a novella or there was a book based on the motion picture? And uh, sometimes I've gone out and bought those things. But a big thank you to um, Ben, Chris and Philip. And uh, Philip is looking forward to us talking about the thing. So what are we talking about tonight, Brad? Yeah, so we decided that for the 100th episode, uh, there are three digits in 100. 
so why not do three films? Um, so we decided to do kind of the thing trilogy. So the thing uh, from another world, the thing 1982 and the thing 2011. And Troy, I will tell you that I watched these films in this order. I watched 1951 version, 2011 and 1982 because kind of chronologically how I felt it should go. Well, big surprise, Brad. (laughs) I watched them in that same order as well. So there's a little bit of an age gap between you and I. So I, I can say that I was not around when the 51 version came out. I did go to the movie theater at 10 years old to go see the 82. And I saw the 2011 with our good friend, Charlie, which we'll talk about that yeah, experience. I, I want you to hear that story again because it makes me laugh. Yes. Um, uh, but you've only seen one of these theatrically. Is that right? Or uh, did, 2011. Yes. 2011. Okay. Yes. I, Subsequently, I've seen uh, 82 in the theater, like when they've done special screenings and stuff like that. But obviously not. This was before I was even born. So, yeah, the the cool thing, again, about uh, Baltimore is being close to like the AFI, the Center Theater, et cetera. uh, I got to introduce my kids to the thing from another world, the 51 version and the Carpenter 82 version on the big screen because the AFI showed those two back to back. And it was amazing. And full disclosure, I think from another world is your daughter's favorite movie. Is that correct? It is. Uh, We thought we were going to get her on the show because she was all pumped about doing this. But alas, college stuff and work gets in the way. Um, But yeah, this is this is going to be an interesting discussion. And and here's the thing, folks. When when we decided that we were going to talk about 1982's The Thing, I mean, it it is a pretty much bona fide classic. I don't know if we could tackle just that one on its own. And quite honestly, I think it's more interesting to talk about that in the context of the films that come before and after it. So that's kind of how we came up with this idea too. Um, But I, I, before we start about the films, I want to talk about the source material for a second. So all three movies are based on the 1938 novella. Who goes there? Brad, have, have you read this thing? Uh, I have not. I have not. I was going to read it for this, but I did something else instead, and we'll get to that later. Okay, cool. I'm just going to give a little background because I, I think it's super important. So uh, Who Goes There was first published in 1938. It's written by John W. Campbell Jr. under the pen name Dan A. Stewart. So Campbell was 25 when he came up with the idea of an alien that could alter their form from animal to vegetable or vice versa as the conditions of their environment required, right? He originally wrote up this premise as a humorous throwaway story called Brain Stealers of Mars, which he sold to a, a magazine called Thrilling Wonder Stories for $80. And Brain Stealers of Mars was published in December of 1936. He reworked that idea as a sci-fi horror story and turned it into what we know today as Who Goes There. The novella was first published in August 1938 in a magazine called Astounding Science Fiction. And here's where it gets a little interesting. An extended version of the story was found in an early manuscript titled Frozen Hell, 
And what happened was um, it was sitting at uh, Harvard University in their historic science fiction collection. And uh, basically they had some documents with um, Campbell's early documents and correspondence papers. They, they find this manuscript called uh, Frozen Hell. As they start going through it, they're like, well, wait a minute, this is a longer version of who goes there. And there was a Kickstarter campaign and it finally got published in 2019. A couple of things about the original story. And if you want to kind of know what, um, like how close are the movies to, you know, the original story, the 1982 version is the closest version. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause they even use a lot of the same names that are found in the story as well, but there is one big difference. So the creature in who goes there is blue with red eyes and it has some fur, um, in some of its spots of its bodies and tentacles. Uh, the other thing that's really interesting, cause I, I did take time this week on top of watching the films. Um, I, I did back that Kickstarter campaign for frozen hell and I have a copy of the book. You can get a copy of it on Amazon now. And it's a fantastic read. It doesn't just have the story, but it has a couple of other um, forewords and information about Campbell and how um, the book you know, came to fruition. It, it's a great read. But it, I, I did sit down to reread it again. And a couple of things I totally forgot was uh, in the book, the creature can take the shape of any creature it has absorbed in the past. So if something happens and it goes, oh, I I used to be this one thing, well, I'm going to turn into that right now. The other thing is that the story suggests that it can read minds or it's telekinetic. And there's actually some sequences where some of the characters have dreams and they foreshadow the events or the things that the creature can do. And there's a hint that the monster could be talking to them in their dreams. Oh, okay. So if, if you've never read it, even the, the final version who goes there, it's a really short read. I encourage everybody, if you like science fiction, you can knock it out in a day, two days if, you're, if you just take your time. But all three movies are based on that concept and that novella. So anytime you see the credits, you'll always see a screenwriter, but you'll always see based on who goes there by John W. Campbell. Yeah, yeah. I um, I. I think I forgot like this was not an original idea. Um, I just thought, Oh, the thing from another world is the origin of the story. Um, it wasn't until we started doing all this stuff. I'm like, Oh yeah, of course I forgot about the book or novella. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, so let's, let's go back to 1951 and start with that one. The thing from another world. Okay. Um, um yeah, usually you and I spent a lot of time, uh, kind of on the production, what goes on. I'm not, I'm not saying we're not going to spend any time on that. We're going to do our best not to, to bore you to death. Cause we're talking three <laughs> films and we don't want this to turn into like a five hour show. Uh, but Brad, let's, let's start with the statistics on this one. So give us a little background of what was going on in 1951 when this thing got released. Yeah. So uh, this has a budget of $40,000. Um, what did you send me today that it was roughly sort of like 440 K is what that would be today for inflation uh, with inflation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Biden's America right now. I'm just joking. Um, (laughs) so the box office run now this is in also includes like us rentals. Um, so it's not a a one-to-one, but it made $1.95 million, um, in 19, in the fifties, essentially, um, which, you know, pretty cool. 
Um, that, that's a lot of money. A lot um, of money. Yeah, considering for forty thousand budget. So technically, I don't know if this one is. It's not a bomb. Say it's a bomb. No, no. no. Uh, yeah. because critically, it's at eighty-six uh, percent with the critics and seventy-three with the audience. So it's technically not a bomb. But if you're going to talk about all three films, you got to talk about all three films. And um, yeah, I had not revisited this one in a really, really long time. So I was anxious to jump back into it. Yeah. And, and to keep in mind, 1951. So it was the highest grossing science fiction film released that year. Yep. And, and to give you the context of why that's important, you beat out movies like the day the earth stood still when worlds collide. I mean, those, those are some pretty big, classic films. Big. Yes. And this one beat all of those. So it, it was a box office success. It was a critical, critical success. Um, I think it's been named uh, in a bunch of different lists in terms yeah, of it's like, in AFI's top 100, yeah. you know, it's in the eighties, but you know, it's still in the top 100 films. Absolutely. So let's talk about the people behind the camera, front of the camera real quick. And we'll talk. We'll, yeah. We'll talk there's about, a huge story with this. There's a huge story about this. So I'm going to start with the director, Christian Neby. Now, what you will see on IMDb, and depending on who you talk to who worked on the film, you will hear that uncredited Howard Hawks also directed it, okay? And and this is where it gets interesting. So the screenplay is by Charles Lederer. Uh, you will see uncredited as well Howard Hawks and Ben Hecht, okay? And what's interesting is Howard Hawks was actually listed as the producer, okay? Mm-hmm. So this was part of his production company, Winchester films. And for those of you not familiar with Howard Hawks, he's probably one of the greatest American directors. And and just to give you a little sampling of the movies that he's done, he, he did the original Scarface in 1932, bringing up baby in 38, his girl Friday in 1940, <laughs> Sergeant York in 41, the big sleep in 1948, gentlemen prefer blondes in 53. And here's where John Carpenter, I think is a huge fan of Howard Hawks. He directed Rio Bravo in 1959, El Dorado in 1966, and Rio Lobo in 1970. So he's worked with John Wayne quite a few times. Yep, yep. Um, The other thing that uh, is notable is special effects were done by Donald Stewart. And uh, (laughs) they originally wanted to stick to the story and have some shape-shifting and, (laughs) you know, do stuff like that. But in 1951's time, as soon as they're going through it and they're looking at, you know, Hey, let's test out some of these special effects. They looked horrible. So they kind of went with um, sort of a, a, a big guy. Yeah. That's kind of a Frankenstein. Frankenstein not a Frankenstein look, right? but yeah, he's got a big head though. Yeah. yeah. And, and again, the reason why you see a lot of uncredited um, Howard Hawks within the directing and screenplay is there, there is a big controversy in terms of how much did Christian, the original director actually direct the film and how much was he guided by Howard Hawks or how much did Howard Hawks just step in and direct the film? Huge controversy. And I don't think <laughs> what's funny is Howard Hawks in the beginning says, no, 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 Christian did all of it. And a lot of stars did that. But I think as he got older, he kept um, changing that story to the point where he was you know, pretty much saying, well, yeah, I directed most of it. So yep. who knows? Yep. And right? so even some of the cast members were like, no, Howard Hawks directed everything but like one scene or something like that. Yeah. And, like, but other cast members are like, no, Christian yep. directed all of it. Howard Hawks maybe did, you know, gave a couple yep. of pointers, but, you know, he was on set all the time, but he kind of stayed out of everybody's way. Uh, so that's the stuff behind the scenes. Um, 
the people in front of the camera, we've got Kenneth Toby as Captain Patrick Hendry, Margaret Sheridan as Nikki Nicholson, Robert Cornthwaite as Dr. Arthur Carrington, Douglas Spencer as Ned Scott. Uh, a lot of people refer to him in the film as Scotty. Scotty. And James Arness as The Thing. Okay. So, Brad, this is not your first viewing of this thing. It is not, but it's probably the first time I've seen it in got 10 to 15 years, maybe. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it's been a while. We watch this every, I mean, this is one of our, do you have like a list of Halloween films that when, Mm -hmm. yeah, for us, this is a a every year watch. So um, I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on this thing? You know, it, it is a 1950s film and I love old Hollywood prestige films. Like give me a black and white film. And I kind of love that kind of stuff. I love like an old Hollywood style movie. Um, I love something where, you know, you just feel like I want to watch this movie and have a big glass of bourbon. And that <laughs> this movie makes me want to do that. Um, I think this has one of the most amazing special effects period. I mean, when they catch the thing on fire oh my god in that room it is uh, just such an amazing shot and you put yourself in that situation and yes he's they put rubbing alcohol on him or whatever so it's only burning the rubbing alcohol but still the fact that they caught a dude on fire and he's running in this building that's made of wood and um it it is really one of the um coolest shots i've seen uh you know it's it's a 1950s movie, so it's uh, very sort of of the time. Um, but it's got this sort of slight, I won't say slight, it's very uh, overt with its uh, fear of communism mm-hmm. um, and, all, and all those themes. But I really enjoyed going back to it. Um, it it was a tad slow at times. Um, really? But you, it, you think it's slow? I think, you know, like the whole reporter thing, I think is a little unnecessary, but oh, for the most no, part, no, okay. Totally okay. right. Here, mom and dad are fighting right now. Okay. That's, no, I, look, that's dude, I, I think, I think this movie is brilliant. I, I, I love it. Um, it's funny to see that the alien was more plant like in this one. Um, and that's not something that really kind of carries through, um, but yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. Of course, there's like one woman character in it and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, if you think about 1982 and you're like, there's not any women in that one. And then you get to 2011. And of course, you know, we'll get to that. But yeah, man, I I, I loved going back to this, especially watching it in kind of then following up with 2011. And you can see all the things that that one doesn't do correctly. Um, and they're getting it right in, in, in 51. Um, so yeah, what were your thoughts? Uh, so <laughs> we're put a couple of disclosures out there. Th- this is your classic sci-fi adventure film with a couple of scary parts. I don't really consider this to be sci-fi horror. I think it has <laughs> way more adventure elements to it. And like you said, it's <laughs> Dude, your, they're getting on that plane every four seconds. Yeah, but it's um, it, it's really interesting because Campbell's writing. And if, and if you read it, uh, Campbell is writing a sci fi horror story. I think 
everybody behind the scenes looked at this and said, if we're going to adapt it for 1951 standards, I mean, it fits all of the check marks for what is classic sci-fi movies for that time period, but it really is heavy on the adventure. And um, I think it's, it's heavier on the adventure and the sci-fi stuff than it is on the horror elements. And, and full disclosure, um, if I were rating this on a scale of one to 10, like if we were on gentleman's guide to midnight cinema, this is easily a 10 for me. I, it's, it's my favorite classic sci-fi movie uh, of the black and whites. Okay. Um, I find nothing about this film to be boring. I think it, it just, it moves rather quickly. The reason why it moves so quickly is the script and the line delivery is fantastic. It's so natural. When you watch this film, I think the thing that sticks out. Pat, the thing. Sorry. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Other than the monster. Yeah. I, I think the thing you're going to notice when you're watching this film is how natural the conversations are taking place. People are talking over each other the way you would in a real conversation, yet it's never confusing. And every exchange feels natural and authentic. And you see character development via their interactions. So every character embraces their sci-fi stereotype for a 50 sci-fi film. But they add this layer of complexity and charm to it. And, and that was kind of the first question I wanted to ask you when we're talking about the script. I think the script delivers a ton of humor to ease the tension. And it does it especially through Scotty the Reporter. Like I, he's one of my <laughs> okay. favorite things about it. Um, and I'll give you an example of some of the things in, in as many times as I've watched this, uh, I'm always picking up something different. And my favorite exchange was, you know, when the scientists and the military guys are arguing and so they go out into the hallway and one of the scientists says, gentlemen, we're getting nowhere. And Scotty in the background is like, well, at least we're consistent. <laughs> it just happens because he's talking over everybody. And if you pay attention, you're going to hear those type of comedic beats, but I wanted to ask you about that because I think when you watch the other two films, the other two films are very much like, what's your line? When you're done with your line, I'm going to give my line. When I'm done with my line, you're going to give your line. And it feels staged. I I think, and I just want to get your opinion on this. I think the the real um, benefit of what makes this movie so good is the script's really good, but the delivery of the lines and the acting just elevates it all. And it's something you don't see today. Yeah. You're not wrong with that. Um, though I, I think the worst is with 2011. Um, I feel like the dialogue in that one is, is way you go, I go, you go, I go sort of deal there. I think there is a little bit more of that sort of men with cabin fever arguing in the, the, um, 82, but you're right. Like this one. And I don't know if it's because, you know, the body count, it isn't as high. So all, like all these characters kind of stick around a little bit longer than they do in the other ones. So they have more chances to be on screen. Um, but you're, you're not wrong. I, I do think the strongest points of the thing from another world is the dialogue is the script. I mean, it makes sense, right? that's the one thing that you can really, really control is the script because like we're going for these grand sci-fi ideas as first as thing was going to be a shapeshifter, but we can't do that. So what can we control? Well, we can make it a really strong 
story, really strong script, really great characters. Okay, we can do that. Check mark. Yeah, and, and I'll give you I'll give you an ex- another example of how I think the script is so good. Typically in this type of film, when you introduce sort of the love interest or the relationship, it derails rather quickly, right? Mm-hmm. I think the romance angle between Captain Hendry and Nikki works and doesn't take away from the film at all. It actually adds this sort of emotional anchor to the proceedings. And you want to see these two people survive and get together. And I also love the fact that Cap- Captain Hendry's crew is always just giving him a hard time about this, too. Uh, and you, and you, As you would. As you would. Yes. And that's where the natural, authentic exchanges come from. And I love the fact that they have a little bit of a history that kind of um, – I, I mean, he apparently acted like a jerk and was all <laughs> octopus hands all over her. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> but – it, it's that kind of um, writing that you find in a really good film that, again, elevates everything that's going on. And to your point, it's heavy in the science, but it never makes you feel dumb, even when it's explaining stuff. Again, yeah. it's a sign of a good script. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and like the thing is a menace in this movie. It's a stalking menace. Yeah. And it's when he's not on screen, you're worried like, where is he? What's he doing? When's he going to show up? And that tension is uh, something that's not easy to do. Um, but this movie is tense. It's got a lot of tension going on. Um, yes. And it, it definitely cresses like when, you know, he comes in and they catch it on fire or when they electrocute it or whatever, like there's moments in this movie that when they swing big with the effects, it pays off. Again, they get on that damn plane so often. It's like, all right, we're going to take the plane. <laughs> well, we'll it's circle funny. around for a little bit and we'll land. Yeah, you, t- you talk about the effects. Uh, for 1951, I think they do some pretty gruesome things uh, in this film. And every time I say things, now I'm self-conscious because we're talking about the movie, about the, the thing. thing, and I keep saying yep. things. But so in 1951, you get some gruesome effects and concepts. And right out of the gate, you get a mutilated dog. That's been hidden in the greenhouse. I didn't expect that. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> warning. If you don't like dog trauma, this, these movies that are dog's not, not for you. Yeah. That dog's not dead, well, <laughs> but it's but still, but it's still 1951. It, gets, it does not get better in yeah, this yeah. series. <laughs> then you get a moving severed hand, right? And the way they frame that they're just showing you enough when it's moving and, and there's a head in the way of this aspect of it, but you see the group all in the frame. I think it's really cool how they pull that off. And then the concept of doctors taking the seeds from this hand and then feeding it human blood to watch these pods grow. Yeah. Uh, I, I think they do a lot. I, I Again, I don't want to be just contrarian to your comments, but I think that vegetable thing does kind of play through because instead of trying to take over the world by taking over imitating life forms – to get around that, they basically said, okay, he all he has to do is drop these pods, and then if he can take the human blood and feed it to the pods, kind of Dracula-like, then they're going to take over the world by creating like millions of these things. So I, I think that vegetable thing is kind of interesting. And and I, I do want to – we really need to talk about that scene. The, the, you, you nailed it. It's one of the most amazing sequences I think ever put to film – especially in a sci-fi horror genre. And and that's when the thing attacks him in the sleeping quarters. So if you haven't seen this and, and, and Brad, I don't think it's, they 
they put a little gel or something and set a guy on fire. If you if you take a step back and think about it, the lights go out, right? And then all of a sudden their lights are flashing on that little Geiger counter, radiation counter as the monster is getting uh-huh. closer and they're all waiting for it. And then the thing bursts into the room and the next thing you know, they throw kerosene on him. Then they shoot a flare gun at him to light the kerosene, right? All in a single take. He's tearing up the room. Yeah, this is all single it. take. Single it's, take. Yeah, all in frame, all in single take. Yeah. And he's tearing up this small room, right? Uh, and pieces of the room are starting to get on fire now. And they throw more kerosene <laughs> on him and get more of the room on fire while they're still in it. And everything's on fire at this point. And there's even this sequence where uh, our our heroine is holding a mattress up and he swipes at the mattress. It looks like he almost hits her, cuts the mattress, right? And everything continues to just set ablaze and the thing jumps out the window. And the fact that nobody is dead or seriously injured from filming this scene is a freaking miracle. I, I cannot tell you but you cannot overstate how amazing that is what is it maybe a minute maybe it's if i don't know it's got to be longer than that way longer yeah yes um and and then i start thinking about this like how many movies uh classic science fiction or horror films now borrow from that from that sequence And, and the first movie that comes to mind is james james cameron's aliens yes uh, I, I mean I just I can't I can't say enough, I, and I'm I'm just going to put it out there. And there are some pretty amazing sequences in a movie we're going to talk about at the end. That is my favorite sequence out of all these films. You know, I don't want to copy you, but I it, it's I'd hear that argument, right? Even, I'd hear that argument. Yeah, even of today's one. standards, like I yeah. don't know how they pulled that off and didn't. You you didn't hear stories like later on, like well. This oh, guy's yeah. dead. That guy, guy died. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he really died. Uh, third degree burns over his entire body. Um, it's so impressive and it's so exciting. It, it, it's just, I don't know. I, the other thing I like about this film is you really only get a good look at the monster, maybe three or four times through the entire film. Right. Uh, and they do a great job of using the shadow to hide some of its features, accentuate other parts of it. And then when the monster does make an appearance, it's always a surprise and you jump. I um, I miss, I really miss the times when directors used atmosphere and tension to build up a scene and then scared you. Today, I really think it's just this heavy reliance on misdirection and music stingers, and they lead to like this big jump scare. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you a great example of where... Well, 2011. Look at 2011. Yes. Yeah, so well, I would say look at movies the last 20 years almost. Yeah. Um. But there, there's a scene where they're talking and they're getting ready to go to the greenhouse. And when they open the door to the greenhouse, the, door is, the thing is right there right, and takes a yeah. swipe at him. He tries to bitch slap that guy. I know. And you don't expect it. Like as may, I watch this thing every year and I still jump at that scene because I'm so invested in what's going on with the conversation and I'm on edge. Uh, and, and it still gets me every year. I, I'm just amazed. Yeah. yeah and, and I don't know if you've played like resident evil two or three, like yeah. two remake and three rate. So like Mr. X, you could definitely see like, Oh, they, they definitely took cues from the thing from another world where that thing is always kind of stalking around. Um, and it's when you're 
don't see it. You're like, where is he? When's he coming next? And then, of course, they did it again with Nemesis, which he's always kind of around. So that tension is broken quite a bit. But um, yeah, you know, that that sort of idea is borrowed heavily even today. Yeah. That, you know, the monster is sort of always around lurking and you should always be worried. But you're right. Like they don't overuse him in this movie to the point where you go a while and you're like, we haven't seen him in a while. And then they open up that door to the greenhouse and you're like, oh shit, there he is. <laughs> and then, you know, and then again, you're like, okay, well, they're going to bed. This should be a safe time. And then boom, opens the door. Then we like, hey, let's catch him on fire, all this stuff. So, yeah, sometimes more is less or well, less is more. Sorry. I agree. And I think the other kind of brilliant aspect of this film is when he's not on screen, they're talking about him and they're talking about the stuff that he's doing or that he can do. And again, I, I think this is typical 50 sci-fi. You're, you're dealing with big concepts, et cetera. And I've, I've said this from the start. Like, I, I don't like real math or real science. Give me like the goofy stuff, um, but stick to it, right? Follow your rules. And I, I love that stuff um, all day long. And I think this movie, again, it goes back to the script. What it does really well is when, you know, the thing is not on screen and they're having to fight it. They're having having to deal with the concept of the thing and how it's going to reproduce. Uh, and you get a little bit of this science versus the military. Then you get down to science military versus common sense. And you know there's an underlying red scare that's happening within mm -hmm. that film as well. It's there. Yep. Uh, but I love the fact that when the monster's not on the screen, they're they're kind of just ratching up the tension by talking about all the things that the monster can do or did. And it's really good concepts and they stick to it. And uh, I, I I think that's a lot of fun. I think it, I, I, that's the horror elements, but it's, it's more fascinating than horrific until you get to the point where they go, well, but this is how it's going to take over the world. And you're like, well, dude, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and you know, I, I we, we can't like overlook like, location plays a big part of this you know you're out in the snow you're by yourself your isolation again and all the movies kind of play on that isolation aspect of it but um this one is a special movie and i think if if you haven't seen it or you haven't seen it in a while it's definitely worth adding to your rotation to to appreciate what is going on and what they're doing because you know, it is a 1951s movie. Like, don't go expecting something, you know, that was made yesterday. But it's it definitely is special. And it will, there are moments that it will catch you off guard. Like, when you don't know that fire is coming, it is, it, it's one of those moments, like you said, like, did, did someone die or did they burn down <laughs> this set? Because everything is on fire and these people are just standing there. Um, it's a pure Jackie Chan moment, in my opinion. It is. It is. Um, and and I, I loved revisiting this movie. I was so happy to sit down and just turn it on. And you're just like, this is like a warm blanket. Of course, it's like snowing in this movie constantly, but it just feels so good to be back in this. It was such a nice primer for what we're like going to see next. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I, I, I love the fact that. I miss drinking and smoking in movies too, Troy. <laughs> they do a lot of that, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the there's so many, the humor in this can't be understated as well. I think it's a really funny film. 
every time I watch it, I'm always laughing out loud, um, especially with Scotty getting annoyed at everybody. Uh, but you know, there's, there's these sequences where the whole idea of them trying to dig it up and use thermite bombs and it kind of, it screws everything up and it blows up the ship. And then they come back and the military is telling them what to do, which is exactly what they did. And Scotty's back there going, well, at least you're all dumb. (laughs) There's, there's a lot of comedy in this and, uh, you got to pay attention and listen to it, but I can't tell you how much, uh, enjoyment I get out of this. I, I really feel it is, um, one of the masterpieces of science fiction cinema, uh, I clearly would put it in my top 20 movies of all time, maybe my top 10. Oh, well, okay. I, I just absolutely love this because I think if you, if somebody were going to film school or somebody wanted to do a film, I would say this is one of the movies you got to go back and watch because when you look at what the script is doing and you look at how everybody is acting in this film, it's top notch. I wouldn't be surprised. And I don't know. I, I was going to ask you this too. Because this is one of the films that I would have assumed somebody like Quentin Tarantino just absolutely loves because of the script and the way they deliver the dialogue. Yeah, I'm assuming you're correct. I, I don't know off the top of my, I mean, it's, it's gotta be because like you said, the way they structure the movie and the way this it's so reliant on the script. I think, yeah, it's gotta be, it's gotta be. I've, I've, I don't know if I've ever heard him out and out say it, but I would be surprised if, if it's not, I, I would um, too. I mean, I would, lo- I would love to hear his thoughts on this thing. I, I assume probably not enough feet for him. So maybe. <laughs> that's the problem, right? Okay. Well, what else about this one? I had so much fun revisiting it and um, I can't, um, I can't recommend it enough. And, and I, I got to point this out too. So I had uh, my lifelong friend Kevin over and he brought his kids and so, you know, they're um, much younger. So his his daughter's not even a TJ, teenager yet. And then one of his sons came over and, you know, about eight, nine years old. And they sat down and watched it and they they liked it. I mean, they weren't like, oh, my God, that's the greatest thing. I just asked them, like, what, what did you think of that? And they're like, well, kind of boring in some spots for kids, right? Yeah. But they had a lot of fun with it. And I will always remember going to the AFI and watching this with my kids and my daughter just absolutely fell in love with it. And she's got uh, like replicas of the movie poster. Um, I mean, this this is one of her favorite films of all time, if not her favorite. Does she have that green one? Uh, yeah, it's the one where yeah. he it's got like him as a green monster. And then the people. Yeah, yeah it's like a. it almost looks like a small quad poster. Yeah. So I, when I was doing my research, I saw that the I think it was RKO classic or something like that did mm-hmm. a a colorized version of it. Have you ever seen that? No, I've only seen the black and white. Yeah. I, you know, some films to me are black and white and they should always stay black and white. So I don't know if I'd ever, I don't know, maybe out of curiosity, I'd like to see it, but there's, there's a great Blu-ray print of this, Mm -hmm. but I can't for the life of me figure out why criterion or somebody hasn't taken a step back and said, look, this is one of the most influential sci-fi films of all time. They just recently did war of the worlds. I would love for them to go back and, and tackle this one and really put a bunch of special features behind it about the making of it, the story of it, et cetera. It deserves mm-hmm. that type of love and attention at this point. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if this one gets talked about enough. I agree with you hundred percent. I mean, if you're, if you're talking about science fiction films in general, I, I, we talk, everybody goes to that 82 version 
And I get it. We'll share our thoughts on that one. This one is not getting enough love at all, especially from today's moviegoers. Agreed. Yeah. Well, that brings us. So we're doing this in the order we watched them, right? Yeah. We got to go to 2011. We're going to 2011. Before. before. Okay. Well, uh, now we're getting into the territory of talking about movies that actually bombed when they were released um, at its original run. So the movie we just talked about from 1951, huge success, deservedly so. Um, This one, The Thing from 2011, didn't do so hot when it came out. So do you want to take us back to 2011 and kind of talk about the what was going on? Yeah, so we got um, it was released um, October 14th, 2011 um, with a reported budget of thirty eight million dollars. It makes a total box office run. It makes thirty one point five million dollars. So it fails to make its production budget back. And if that was not enough, Troy, according to the critics, it was a thirty four percent. And with the audience, it is a. 42 percent oh boy so um but um i i I will say i i was going back and looking the october um time frame when this came out was pretty heavy um we had did you see that movie margin call with kevin spacey demi moore didn't see that came out it was about the financial crisis of 08 right um and then we had real steel Real Steel made three hundred and fifteen million dollars. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of it's an awesome a lot movie, of money. Man. Uh, Robot yeah. boxing. Uh, yeah, wasn't that kind of the Rock'em Sock'em yeah, movie was, in a way? Yep. Yeah. Uh, Ides of March, which has Ryan Gosling and George Clooney, made eighty-seven million dollars. The Artist, which I believe was one best the picture Academy that Award, year, best picture. Yep, one hundred and forty. Um, and then you had Footloose at eighty million dollars. And um, what else? There's one more. Oh, Johnny English uh, Reborn makes $168 million. Right. And the big one, Paranormal Activity 3, makes $210 million, along with the Three Musketeers making $149 million. So a lot of competition when this thing came out. Um, huh. Yeah. I, yeah. I feel like... This was set for failure from the start. When you talk about um, people who are familiar with the 82 version and maybe the source material, I can specifically remember talking to people when this thing was coming up and me being pretty excited because I love John Carpenter's film and seeing what they were going to do here. But I didn't meet a whole lot of people who had that type of enthusiasm for this. I was pretty excited for it because I, my feelings on 82, but I wasn't, you know, there wasn't anything that I know when I saw the trailer, I was like, yeah. And I knew like, Oh, it's a prequel. And so I, I'm assuming I know what the last shot of the film is going to be. <laughs> and of course, you know, it plays out the exact way you think. And, and it has that sort of like rogue one, problem right yes yep you n- kind of know what happens to all the characters and so when you meet these people you're like well they're not in 82 so I- i'm assuming none of these people make it um right. 
So there's that. Okay. Well, let, let's talk about the people who worked on it behind the camera first. Uh, I'm going to butcher this name. I'm just <laughs> yes, going to say it right there. Uh, director um, Matthias Van Heijgen Jr. There you go. That's my attempt at it. Okay. All right. So he had only done three short films prior to 2011's The Thing. The Thing was his first feature film. And I, I found this kind of interesting. He was attached to this film after the studio canceled a sequel that he was working on to the Dawn of the Dead remake. Now, that sequel was written and produced by Zack Snyder called Army of the Dead. We just can't get away from that piece of no, crap. No, we can't. We can't. <laughs> Sorry, Jose. <laughs> so he is a Dutch filmmaker. I think we should, yes. we should uh, point yep. that out. Yeah. Now, the screenplay is done by Eric Heiser. And uh, here's here's some credits that Eric has worked on. He did the remake to A Nightmare on Elm Street, 2010. Garbage. He did Final Destination 5 in 2011. Garbage. Lights Out in 2016. Yeah, I bet. Arrival in 2016. Bird Box in 2018. And uh, the Vin Diesel film, Bloodshot, in 2020. So those are the, that's your screenwriter right there. Now, the producers are Mark Abram and Eric Newman. The reason why I bring them up is they were responsible for the Dawn of the Dead remake. Which is a solid remake. It is. It's really good. And, I, and that film was a huge success. So after the success of that film, they specifically started looking for older properties to reboot or remake. And they approached Universal and were kind of going through the catalog and stumbled across the thing. And originally they were going to shoot for a remake and they said, well, we can't do a remake. That's uh, I think the quote that they used is, well, that's like drawing a mustache on the Mona Lisa. So how about we do a prequel, right? 2011. Uh, so th th those are the people behind the scenes um, working on this sucker. And, and we'll talk about special effects here in a minute. When we talk about production and development, the cast, I'm only going to mention a few people, um, Mary Elizabeth Winstead as Kate Lloyd. We've talked about her before uh, when we did Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Okay. Joel Edgerton as Carter. Wait, What? She's in what Troy? Scott Pilgrim versus the world. And she's in what? Scott. Pilgrim. She's in a Quentin Tarantino movie. She's in a Quentin Tarantino film. Yes. Okay. Go for it. She is in death proof. Death proof. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Death proof. There we go. Okay. Yeah. Um, Joel Edgerton as Carter. Now Welcome back to the show. <laughs> we've talked about him before. Uh, early on, because one of the early movies that we did was Warrior from 2011, mm -hmm. which I think we both loved. And Absolutely. then the other person I'm going to talk about is like the human um, bad guy, I guess, of the group. Ulrich Thompson as Dr. Sander Halverson. And then there's 14 other warm bodies that get taken out during the course of the film. Okay. So you got those three principles plus 14 others. One thing I want to talk about because right out of the gate, this thing just gets crapped on because of the special effects, right? Yeah. So what is the 1982 version of the thing known for Troy? Uh, Rob Bottin's animatronic special effects and yes. practical effects. So we're going to do a prequel to that movie. So what do you think we should carry over to make our prequel? I think the creature effects should be done with as many practical elements as possible. 
awesome. We're going to shoot it that way. And then we're going to go back and then <laughs> change them all to CGI. Yeah. So the, the creature effects were filmed primarily with cable operated animatronic robots on the director's insistence, since it would improve the performances of the cast if they saw what they had to react to. Makes total sense, right? Mm-hmm. Computer-generated images were planned to be added as elements to the animatronics, like the tentacles, okay, because those mm-hmm. are hard to do, if it could be done convincingly. However, audience responses from initial test screenings caused the studio to order the replacement of most animatronic scenes by full CG models. Creature effects supervisor Alec Gillis would later say that seeing the finished movie gave the special effects team a postpartum depression. Although most of their designs had survived, their animatronics were so worked over that they felt they could have just done the designs and stayed at home. And in fact, he got so mad about it, he uh, ended up directing um, a film in 2015 called Harbinger Down. I guess it was a crowd-funded movie. Mm -hmm. I think Lance Hendrickson is in it. And he only did that with um, practical effects. Now, the director had such a negative experience with this film and due to the constant studio interference, he claimed to have lost his passion for filmmaking and retired for nearly a decade. Although he has been working on films again in Norway, he has vowed to never work with an American studio again. Yep. So I believe the studio that did most of the CGI was image. I think so. Yeah. And they would go on to later work for district nine. So these aren't people who are terrible at their jobs. Like they, I I think once you shift like that, you're probably saying we're going to shift to full CGI and you have six months to do it or 90 days or whatever, you know, I think think it was, yeah. The post-production was compressed. They were doing it right up to like a week or two before Mm -hmm. the release. of. So anytime you hear that, you're like, okay, the, the, the special effects houses were under a immense amount of crunch time that they're not going to look great because they don't have enough time. It, it, a lot of special effects come down to, are your people talented? Most of the time, if they're in these Hollywood special effects as they're talented do they have money and do they have time and if they don't have both of those the effects are not going to be great yeah and and again we've talked about this on on many episodes the test screenings right test screenings Mm -hmm. can send a studio into total chaos uh and apparently the test screenings didn't go very well with this with the animatronics and practical and the studio's knee-jerk reaction was well the reason why people aren't responding to this film very well is the special effects. We've got to go back and put some CG stuff in there. So it's not, it's not all CG. So there, there are practical effects in there, but let's, let's just say a majority of it is CG. Yeah. And the ones that are like the main parts, like the, the main effects are definitely CGI. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. When they are charring bodies and stuff. Yeah. Hey, we'll throw this dummy on the ground and catch on a fire. Of course. Yes. Okay. But like the two face one and all that, like the two head one, like, yeah, it, it's, it's crazy, man. It's just crazy that they would take something. It's like not only painting the Mona Lisa with a mustache, but it's like, Hey, now let's do the Mona Lisa, but like in watercolor. And you're like, well, why are we doing that? We have that for like, if we're going to do it, we got to do it the same way. I, I don't understand why 
You, you I, do I don't, it. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if I do. I look at it this way. I think we debated this when, when John was on the show too. Like CG is just a tool, right? It so is. It is. You, you want to pay homage to maybe the original source material by putting practical effects in there. But at the end of the day, if, if you can get it done with CG and it has a visual um, originality to it, and it and it serves the purpose of the story and the film and it's exciting and everything. I don't care if it's practical or CG as long as it works, right? Yeah, but you have to respect the the medium enough to, to where you're going to give it enough time to say, okay, we have to pivot now. I don't. If think- we're going to change it, we're going to either have to make either we either need to stick to our guns or we need to change it and give people enough time to make it good because. Either like the thing is known, even if it's not practical, the thing is known that the the effects are good. They're amazing. Oh, I, I agree and with you, that. If and you're I not think... gonna hit like the amazing part, then you shouldn't do it because the bar is set, set so high. I don't care if it's practical or CGI, you need to at least hit that bar. I don't disagree, but I, I actually think I, I don't know if I agree with your comment about respect to source material. Like I think they should not have respected the source material. If you're going to do a prequel to 82, I don't think you should be trying to make the same film. I mean, think about 1951 versus 1982. Carpenter did not remake 1951. In fact, he did um, a movie that was close to the 51 version in terms of some of its themes. And and maybe he replaced the communism aspect with the AIDS scare, right? Because yeah. that, that's come up a couple, yes. a couple of times, yeah. right? But he didn't, <laughs> he he wasn't, think of it this way. Principally, the 51 version was like, we're not going to show the monster maybe three or four times. And the rest of it comes from the tension, the atmosphere, everything else. Carpenter's like, not only am I going to show you the monster, I'm going to put it right in full, under the light. You're going to see everything. So he didn't respect the filmmaking um, principles that maybe the 51 movie was abiding by. Mm-hmm. He did his own thing. I would agree with you if it was, hey, if you're going to go to this route, then stick to it. Just fix that aspect of it. Make it a good story. Um, but I don't think you can come back at this and go, well, the fact that they did CG, it was going to suck out of the gate. Dude, they should have just no. said, we're going to do all CG and we're going to just make. Yeah, stick to a plan and, and yeah. stay with it. My my problem is, is they, from what I understand, they set out to say, okay, the thing kind of starts off in the middle of the story in 82. Yeah, like we're jumping into the story. That's kind of why it's so good. Is like you're getting into it. You're, it's just going. Here we're like, okay, we want to know what happens. How's that dog get there? Essentially, this is a story about how does that dog yes. get to that place, right? So rewind it and say, okay, give me that story. And they came up with a story. And essentially, it, are you so? <laughs> Like it, it could work as like a volume one, volume two, right? I agree. Yeah, yeah. And and so if you're gonna do that, I, I think there should be some respect to the medium. Either way, I, look, pick it, make a choice. The the thing that bothers me is people always being afraid to make a choice. I don't be wrong. I, it's I okay to be wrong, <laughs> but make a goddamn choice. It's so weird because in my head, I I'm tell like, people that I work with all the time, make a choice. If it's wrong, it's I wrong. hear what you're saying, and I agree with <laughs> half of what you're saying. When when you go stick to something and just do that, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you go respect the source, I'm like, no, don't respect the source. Like, 
as a storyteller, as a director, as a screenwriter, if you think it should be done differently and you can you can bring something different to the screen, I mean, if if we went around respecting the sort, I, I think that whole thing of well, we're going to do practical effects and all this other stuff was to appease the fanboys and and mm-hmm. all the people who are like, oh my god, you can't touch the classic. I don't care. Like touch the classic, do whatever you want to it. And if you go, I'm not going to do anything practical. If they turn around and said, we're going to make a prequel and we're never going to show the monster, I'd be like, ooh, that's kind of interesting. Go for it. Yeah. That would have been a choice. I, I know. If they would have stuck to that, that would have been fine. Like, I agree. Okay but they don't that. have to respect how Carpenter did his if they're going to do a different one. Well, the don't end it on the goddamn dog. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that's like my thing. Why it's can't like, they? Why can't they? Because you're. You're trying to be like, okay, we're going to be, if that was the case, they're like, oh, we're going to be so different, but then, you know, we're going to tie it back into this, this dog thing. Like alien Alien. one and alien two are two different. They're, they're, they're two different genres, right? Two two different genres. Yeah. They could have done that in this and that'd have been totally fine. I think they tried, but they, yes, but (laughs) then they wrap it back in. It was like, okay, well, how's that dog get there? How's that dog get to that outpost? What happens to that helicopter? Why is that? What happens? You'd be like, saying the same crap if aliens came out first and then they did alien and they're like, well, how, how did Ripley get frozen or whatever? And uh, if they, if they weren't doing, if they did CG versus the other one, you'd be like, well, they didn't respect the material. Well, but <laughs> those movies are both fantastic. No, I agree. That's bad. I would analogy. argue that, <laughs> they're pretty I would, fantastic. I would argue that <laughs> 2011 is not, a good movie. Let's just get into it. Okay. I don't think 2011 is that good of a movie. Um, I, I do like moments of it. I think there are, I think one of the choices they make is, is really good is they have a high body count and they get to killing people. Um, and I, I like Mary Elizabeth, Mary Elizabeth Winstead and like Joel Edgerton. Um, I think one of the mistakes they do in this movie is they have Joel Edgerton be gone for the whole second act. And I think that's a mistake because he's one of the better characters. Um, I think it, it kind of goes into the prequels of Star Wars where they're explaining everything. Um, and like it can't replicate inorganic material and this and that. And, and you're, you're getting all these details that you thought you wanted. Um, and then when you get them, you're like, eh, maybe I maybe I didn't want to know how Darth Vader was became how you know how anakin became darth vader maybe it wasn't worth it um i i I don't know man i i i am really sort of because there are aspects of this movie that i like um but then they go to like the spaceship and then there's i'm like is that a step too far well it makes sense to go the spaceship so why wouldn't they go the spaceship um i don't know man i i just it was a slog to get through it. And and I think one of the things I was noticing because I immediately watched 82 right after this one was there is not a whole lot of yelling and screaming and jump scares in the 82 version. Yes. The, the men argue and they raise their voices and stuff like that, but there's not a lot of like screaming. I felt like 2011 was loud. Like it, it just like to me, sometimes it's like the loudest person in a room, right? They usually lack the least amount of confidence, but they have to be loud to be heard. And I feel like this movie feels like it has to be loud to be heard. And that's not necessarily the best way to tell a movie. I just feel like it's just not 
confident in what it's trying to do. Um, and, and again, I don't know if, if that confidence is because, Hey, we're wishy-washy on wh- how we want to do our effects or, or this or that, or um, are we really going to go up right up against like, do the zero seconds to when the thing starts. Yes, we are. Um, and they do that over the credits. So you're even then you're like, are you even confident in this choice? Cause like you ended your movie credits hit. And then you're starting to show me what happens next. Like that even shows like a lack of confidence. So I, I, I don't know. I just, there were so many choices that I felt like weren't great choices. And then you hear like the director say, well, there's a lot of interference and the studio kind of took over and you're like, okay, yeah, I can see how a film lacks confidence when there's all these hands picking at it, making choices and no one really sticking to something. Um, again, I tell people all the time, it's okay to be wrong. Use the information <laughs> that you have and make a choice. The worst thing you could do is not make a choice they made choices. They didn't like make choices. I I don't know. They just, this lack of confidence in this filmmaking of this movie is so apparent to me that it's hard to feel like it's a complete movie at times. So I I think it's funny. You would say that it's not a very good film. And I would say it's, it's not really a very bad film. Um, I, I think, I think we're closer in opinion on things but I might be edging more on the positive than the negative for you only because I almost feel like it's unnecessary. Maybe. So let's start there. Um, okay. The, the problem you're going to have to get, you said it, um, your movie is going to be compared to the 1982 version. And if you're setting yourself up as a prequel, given the story in the 1982, everybody knows how the movie's going to end, right? There's going to be very little surprises because, it's going to end with two guys in a helicopter trying to shoot a dog and everybody's dead Bad, badly. Everybody's badly dead. Shoot a dog. So, you yeah. know, that's how and you're like, okay, well I'm not going to be surprised where this movie goes. Right. The, the other thing you got to keep in mind is it's a 2011 studio film, not a 1982 universal given a director money and go do what you want thing. Right. Mm-hmm. It's a 2011 studio film produced by two guys who are making a career out of rebooting old horror movies. So you're going to get a remake disguised as a prequel. So the 2011's The Thing is pretty much acting like the monster The Thing in that it's an imitation of the original, but they're calling it a prequel. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's a remake. Yeah. Um, I don't hate Do you have movie. a problem with the calling it The Thing as well? Yeah, I, I don't. <laughs> no, <laughs> I okay. mean, okay. At the end, that, of the, that was a gripe that people said at the at the time. It's like, why are they calling it the thing? There's already a movie called the thing because like, they well, call it Halloween. Yeah. They, I mean, yeah. they call yeah. it Scream. Um, yeah. I, to me, I, I look. I don't know. I don't hate the film. I, I really don't. I think it's pretty average um, in terms of a 2011 sci-fi action horror film with the emphasis on action. Mm-hmm. The thing that separates this movie from the other two is that it is trying to introduce more action into the mix than the other two. And it probably has more resident evil DNA than the John Carpenter 82 version. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that's what they're going for because that might've been 
like what was um, what they considered a more viable solution for a horror action film was to line it up with a little bit more like that Resident Evil. And I, I think it has more in common with that series than Carpenter's film. Yeah. And I think it shows in the special effects too. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of dodgy special effects. The worst effect, I, I don't know what you think. For me, the one that sticks out is that transformation on the helicopter. I mean, it looks like unfinished CGI when his face starts to split. Uh-huh, yeah. I think that's the worst effect in the film. Um, but however, the autopsy sequences are pretty gross and gooey. And it's what you expect from like a creature film, right? The, o- the only problem is it sort of lacks visual uniqueness. And it just looks like, well, they took a bunch of different creatures and popped them in there. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, I don't know, it, it's not memorable. You just go, it's a gooey creature. That's probably my, you said it's not memorable. Because not, as yeah. soon as I got done watching this and then I watched the 82 version, I'm like, wait what happened in the other one? Like, of course the dog, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But all the little things that happened, I'm like, okay, why do was Mary Elizabeth Winstead there? Oh yeah. She was asked to go. Why was she asked to go? She like a paleontologist or something. Like, and you're just like, yeah. Oh wait, I don't remember anything about any of the characters or the story really. Yeah. No, I, I, it, I think it comes down to this. You know, if you think about it from the transformation sequences in this film, they're not scary or surprising. Now, I've watched so many videos where like, well, the reason why they're not scary surprising is the use of CGI and blah, blah, blah. I say bullshit. Okay. No, I don't, I don't think it's a CGI versus practical effects problem. Like people who say that I think are idiots. Um, like if anybody were to come to me and go, well, practical effects are always better than CGI. I'd be like, you're an idiot. It's a tool. It's about the artist and how the artist uses that tool. The problem with the transformation sequences is it lacks suspense and tension so we just talked about the 1951 it's, it's a classic film and what it does right is set up the tension and suspense. The 82 one does it as well. This one doesn't have any of it. This movie is a perfect example of modern horror films because it's all based on using misdirection of music cues to replace the atmosphere and the suspense. And there's a lot of jump scares with stingers. And even when that's not happening, I'll give you a great example. We just got done talking about that whole fire sequence right Mm -hmm. in the 1951 version so there's a sequence and there's there's nothing going on right but there's a sequence when mary elizabeth winstead and joel edgerton are walking down a corridor and the building's on fire right remember this Uh at no point do i think that they are in danger of the fire much less even getting warm from the flames (laughs) i mean that sequence really stands out after just watching the 1951 version as an example of how little thrills there are in the film compared to the other movies. And it's really trying to focus on the action sequences. And it feels a little bit like a traditional horror film, um, like a serial killer stalker Halloween. Well, even like there isn't the evil things. It's, it's about people going up against creatures and trying to survive it. And yep. again, that's why I don't think it's a terrible film um, because I kind of the Resident Evil films for me are fun, even though I think they're kind of brainless. Um, but I I don't know. I just I don't hate the film. I when I watched it, I wasn't mad. I <sighs> there were some sequences where I'm like, well, that's kind of cool. 
Um, I like Mary Elizabeth Winstead in it. I think she does a great job through the entire film. You're right. Mm-hmm. Joel Edgerton is sorely missed in the second act, but when he's there, he's great. I disagree with you on the whole, um, the, the thing can't absorb the inorganic material. I actually thought that was a neat little um, addition to the mythology of it because it makes total sense. I just don't think they did enough with it. I mean, they 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 come up with that to try and replace the blood test scene with the whole cavities mm. and filling. But even when they pull that off, I kind of like it when some guy goes, "Wait, I'm I'm going to be uh, I don't know thrown out into the cold because I floss or however he says it." I'm like, "Yeah, that's a good point." And then the other people are like, "Well, I got porcelain." And you're going, okay, your test really is super flawed. Yeah. But I like I like the tension that it creates and I like that concept of it. I just don't know if they do enough of it. And I, I think that's how I would view it. Well, this it's a half baked idea. It I is. guess is what I was A lot of this has half baked ideas that never come to fruition. Yeah. Again, it's the confidence thing, right? Like if you're gonna do that, do it. I I don't know if it's confidence as in they're trying to like um I mean, they're they're recreating so many scenes of the first film. They they just are. Uh, but while they're doing that, they're trying to inject some new stuff. It's just they don't get enough breathing room to do the new stuff because as, as soon as they're doing the new stuff, I'm sure somebody's back there going, hey, you need a scene where they're all standing outside around something that's burning and they're setting up the rules. We need that scene. <laughs> Yeah. We, we need a blood test scene. So hey, where's that, that scene? Yeah. We need to do that here. Yeah. yeah. And, and I know in the making of, they were watching, you know, they had all these stills from the 82 version and saying, there's an ax on the wall. How'd that ax get here? Well, let's, let's incorporate this aspect of it. Right. So I do think there's a lot of stuff being crammed in here. Um, I think there's some competent filmmaking choices and storytelling going on. And there's some competent acting going on. I just don't think it all gels to like a masterful, scary event. I think it comes out to like, here's Resident Evil 15. Yeah, I think if you're getting caught up onto the origin story of why is this axe in this door, you might be doing the wrong thing. You might be concentrating your time on on stuff that's not important. I agree 100%. I, I think that's where they made some mistakes. And, and like I said, where I probably was jumping all over your comment about Stay true to the original. Like, I, I think that's the flaw. I, I would have loved for them to kind of go. Um, but again, it's 2011. Two guys are coming in going, we got to make a remake, but we're not going to call it a remake because everybody's going to you know, have kittens. Uh, so let's call it a prequel, but it's really going to be a remake. And at the end of the day, they should have just went in and said, yeah, let's tell that story of what went down at that you know outpost. And let's not try and recreate the first one, but come up with something totally different. And you CGI till you're blue in the face. I think it would have been a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, it could have been. I, I think that's, to me, this is a miss because I like the idea of this monster. I like the idea of you don't know who you can trust. Yeah. I like the idea of of being in this location where you're trapped. Um, it, it just never comes together for me, and I kind of wish it did because I would like to have a two-part thing movie. Uh, it'd be cool. Um, as it is now, I can probably pass watching this one again for a while. To well, be honest with you. Here, we talked about how we were going to watch these things. And it was funny how I think you and I came to the conclusion because it was just like, hey, I'm going to watch it this way. And you're like, well, that's how I'm going to watch it. And we're like, oh, okay. So we watched this before the 82. I'm glad we did it because here's one thing I realized. Uh, if you've never seen any of these films, 
you need to watch this one last. This film will spoil some of the surprises and tension of the 1982 film, especially uh, the dog that is happening um, and kicks mm-hmm. things off in the 82. I'm glad I watched it in this order just to kind of understand that revelation. But I, I kind of equate it to somebody who's coming to the Star Wars films. I actually ran across somebody a few years ago. I was like, well, I've never seen a Star Wars film. How should I watch them? One, two, three, four. I'm like, no, 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 no. You can't watch them like that. You got to watch them like um, four, like four. start with a new hope. Four, five, four, five. One, two, three, one, two, three, six, six, seven, eight, nine. Yep. Yep. That's Be- correct. Because yep. if you don't do it that way, then that whole sequence of Luke, I'm your father. It has zero impact on you if you watch it numerically. And I feel like this is this movie kind of falls into the same vein where that dog, and especially the beginning of the 82, the tension and suspense at the beginning of the 82 is all dependent on that dog. And this prequel, watching it before 82, if you've never seen these two films, you can't do it. You have yeah, to watch 82. Waiting for the dog to turn. Yeah, you have to watch 82, then go back and watch the prequel. And I actually think it'll be an okay experience. Um, this is not going to come to the level of 82 in terms of um, just cinema storytelling. Um, but I, I don't, I really don't think it's a piece of crap. I, I don't, I, I think it's just another, I, I don't Evil either, film. but it's a big miss it, based on what 2011. No, not really. It's just an average monster uh, on, on what I want as a good movie. <laughs> I don't care when it comes out. 1951. I, I was, agree. I, all yeah. movies should be at the level of the 51 and the 82. Not all movies in not all movies in the last twenty years are even any. I don't want to say they're not any good. It's just, oh boy, that could be a whole other show. Like, yeah, that's a whole other. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm getting no, my old I, man I, soapbox. I, like eh, back in the day. <laughs> no, but man, I I wanted to really enjoy this movie because, like I said, I would love to have a three hour thing movie. Yeah. I, I did enjoy this, but I enjoyed it knowing it's a 20, I've seen it before. I, I, it's a 2011 monster film. They could have called it anything but the thing. And I think people would have liked it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. But that's just people being fanboyish. I agree. Well, <laughs> it's, you, you want it to, it's be- hard to talk about when you're just having a podcast later and you're like 2011. I got to share uh, the story of the first yeah, time you I saw this Yeah, you got to share your story, please. So he's he's been on the show before. Uh, it, it, his, Spoiler alert, he's coming back at some point. He is coming back. Um, Charlie is is one of our closest, best, longest friends. We've known Charlie for a long time. Love Charlie. And uh, Charlie is very much, I mean, as, as much as we know about horror films, Charlie knows everything about probably the subgenre of like monster films. Mm-hmm. That's, that's his thing. Right. And so anytime you get a monster film, Charlie is all in and Charlie loves um, the 82 thing. So I happened to be um, in that area in Southern Indiana. And I remember specifically we we're in Clarksville at the great escape. Oh yeah. And it was my wife and Charlie um, and myself went to see this film opening night, Friday night, and we we go watch this and there there's a point and i specifically remember it it was when the guy's head uh shifts right you get that cgi effect and charlie's body mannerisms i thought now now charlie's a tall guy i thought he was going to he just starts squirming in his seat he's so mad like he's furious i thought he was going to like detach the seat he was sitting in and throw it at the screen 
And I'm like, oh my God. And the rest of the film, he could not sit still. It was just anger, just brewing up. And I'm sitting right next to him and I'm, I'm trying to watch this film, but I'm also trying not to laugh at him because <laughs> you would have thought this movie broke into his house and murdered his parents. <laughs> I mean, it, it just, it offended everything um, that Charlie held true to what a movie should be. So the movie's over and he doesn't say a thing, nothing. He just storms out. We, we were leaving him and Tabitha and I are like, Ooh, I I wonder, I wonder if he liked it. <laughs> we're kind of joking about it because Tabitha and I, after our first showing, we're like, eh, it's all right. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's a monster film. I, eh, it was never going to be the 82 version. We got into the parking lot and then it's, it's like going to church sometimes when Charlie goes on a, a, a I don't know, a rampage of his opinion. When he gets in front of his pulpit. Yes. And so like 45 minutes later, we've been standing in this parking lot next to the car with him just going off on everything wrong with this film and how it just desecrated all good taste. And it was one of my favorite moving going experiences ever because nothing gives me more joy than somebody really loving something or even really hating something. And he was so articulate and passionate in that. Um, And you're just seeing this giant cuddly, teddy bear charlie just basically ripping in to 2011's the thing and and i i was just in heaven because i'm like this is awesome i disagreed with everything he was saying but (laughs) i wasn't going to bring it up because we would have been there another like four hours but uh no that that was my first experience of it and i love it it's like one of my favorite uh movie going memories because i just love people that are that passionate and emboldened with it but he hates this thing I, i would be surprised if he ever saw it again Ooh, probably not. I need to ask him. But yeah, he's probably never seen this again. Probably don't want to open up those wounds again. Yeah. And if you go on the internet, if you go to YouTube and go, well, let me 2011 is the thing. You've got so many people who tear into this thing. And I think it's kind of unjustified because I think if you hold this thing up to, to 1982's version, it doesn't stand a chance. It doesn't stand a chance against the 1951 version, but it's still an okay film, I think. I'd watch this 10 times over that 2019 version of Hellboy. Yes. Okay. Yes. I will. I will agree with that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, what, yeah. what else on this one? I don't know, man. I can't believe I was like, Hey, I wish there's jo- more Joel Edgerton in this movie, but that's <laughs> yeah. where we were. We were there. He's not that bad. He's not that bad. Well, it's, uh, it's funny. I mean, how this thing ends. Were you just waiting for the earring when, once you saw the earring and you're like, yeah. Oh, the inorganic material. You're like, okay, there's definitely going to be a scene where you see him without the earring and you're going to know that he's been taken over. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, it would have been nice. I thought watching this time around uh, when she, you know, full spoiler, she like torches Joel's character for a minute there. I'm like, I think she just torched a human being until the sound effects come in and you yeah. start hearing the alien screen. Yeah. I think it would have been nice if there was a doubt as to whether Joel was the thing and she was just being extra paranoid. Yes. Because at the end of 82, you have childs and McCready as like, are they, is one of them? Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And it's kind of left unknown there. You're like, Oh, she made the right choice. It'd be funny. It would be nice if they never showed the earring and she just says it. And you're like, did she just kill him because? Yeah, I I think it comes down in 20. Well, 
definitely in 2011 was dead in 2011. Well, in 2011, I would even say in 2022, you can't have an ending like that where she would have killed somebody and there's an unknown ambiguous element to it because the average movie going audience uh, would not go for that. I mean, that would, that, that would be a nail in the coffin. And I think the studio knows that. And we'll, (laughs) we'll talk about some things when we talk about 1982. Um, But yeah, I, I know why they did what they did, but um, it would have been, it would have been interesting if they left some doubt there. Yeah. If they made a choice, if they made a choice. Uh, <laughs> well, they did make a choice. They made a choice for a happy ending. Cause she lives. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Anything else on 2011? No, no, we have to get to 1982 now. All right. Well, full disclosure. I don't know what we can add to 1982, but let's try man. Yeah. Well, whatever. Okay. So take us back, man. How did this thing do? Yeah, so <clears throat> 1982's The Thing, directed by the one, the only John Carpenter, uh, was released June 25th, 1982, with a reported budget of $15 million, and it makes a whopping $19.2 million. And yeah. you say, well, that's because of, you know, there's other movies out. Yes, there was one movie out right around this time. It was called E.T., and a lot of people say you have this nice cuddly uh, ET alien that is nice. And then you have the thing, um, which is not nice. Um, but anyway, I will say when I've looked at Rotten Tomatoes, because one of the things you will hear about 1982's version, is it was basically panned critically. A lot of the nerd magazines at the time said it was nihilistic. It was, you know, this and, and that. And let, they let's make it. something clear. In 1982, everybody hated this film, not just critics, fans. I mean, John Carpenter has been on record to say it wasn't that the critics hated this film that got to him the most. It was the fact that the fans hated this film. His fans hated this. If you look at like Starlog back then and uh, what was that? Cinefastique or whatever it's called. Those articles are brutal. Yeah. Just brutal. Everybody hated this thing. So when I went back and looked... Right now, it sits at an 83 on Rotten Tomatoes with the critics and then a 92 with the fans. So that's not the current status of what it was in 1982. It was much, much worse. Um, It's probably like 5%. (laughs) 5%. I mean, I absolutely love June of 1982. Go for it. Because. Yeah. Poltergeist comes out that month. Mm -hmm. E.T. comes out that month. Grease 2 comes out that month, oh, which I don't love. Yeah. Uh, and a film on the same day as the thing Blade Runner, another notorious bomb, comes out the same day. If nine-year-old Brad could have gone to see uh, Blade Runner and the thing on the same day in the theater, I would have lost my freaking mind. I but, saw all those in the theater at 10. Yeah. Yeah. I'm there aren't many times I'm jealous that I'm much younger than you, but this is a time when I'm like, man, I would have given anything to see that in the theater. Um, so those are some of the films of June of 1982, arguably one of the best months of cinema period. Agreed. I agree. hundred uh, percent. And it cannot be stated enough how, when this film came out, there, there is a great reviled, <laughs> reviled. 
There is a, what you need to do folks, go on YouTube on this thing called the internet and search out John Carpenter, David Letterman, the thing. So when he's doing the press tour, John Carpenter shows up on a um, talk show, David Letterman, like late night with David Letterman and Letterman's interviewing him. Interview starts out great. And they show Stu Falls, Iowa. I believe. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. Um, so they, they, uh, they show a clip of the film and then you just need to watch David Letterman's mannerisms and how he starts interviewing Carpenter after that and kind of starts poking for him. And Carpenter realizes that. And Carpenter all of a sudden isn't having a really great time at the interview. It's only like seven or eight minutes, but it is fantastic. But it'll give you an idea. A lot of, of goo there, John. Woohoo! <laughs> oh, it wasn't even that. It was like, you think kids are going to line up around this one? And he even asked a question like, do you, do you have kids? And he's like, well, no. Would, would you let your, like if you had an eight-year-old son, would you let him would you let him see this thing? It's very judgmental, but uh, it's it's a fan. It will give you a taste of I think everybody's reaction to this thing when it came out, and I can remember seeing it in the theaters and just totally blown away. Uh, and I can remember my father who took me. I don't know what he thought of it at that point um, because it was pretty revolutionary in terms of what it was showing. Okay, so I think it blew everybody's mind. Um, and I'm going to run through a little bit of the behind the scenes in front of the scenes because, you know, 50 episodes ago, we talked about John Carpenter ad nauseum who directed this thing. Uh, and, and just give you a little context. Escape from New York was in 1981. Big hit. He did the thing in 1982. It bombed. And he followed that up with Christine in 1983. And that was a hit. Okay. Mm -hmm. Not a huge hit, but it made money. The screenplay, I always forget this too. The screenplay is done by Bill Lancaster. Mm -hmm. Bill Lancaster wrote Bad News Bears in 1976. The Bad News Bears and... go to Japan in 1978. And then The Thing in 1982. There you go. That's, and that's it. That's, that's it. It's done. Yeah. The music is by um, Ennio Morricone. Cinematography by Dean Cundy, which we've talked about Dean. Again, ad nauseum. And uh, you, you mentioned this already. Um, what... 82 is really known for special makeup effects, creator and designer, Rob Bottin. Now Stan Winston has an uncredited additional makeup effect. And I think he did the dog. The uh, dog. Sequence. Yes. Yep. Okay. But for anybody not familiar with Rob, but basically he recommended Bob to do this. Yeah. He recommended Rob. Go, go, go ahead. Yeah. Worked on a little bit. And, and for anybody who's not familiar with Rob Bottin's work, uh, he did the howling in 81 legend in 85, Tom Cruise, Robocop in 1987, Total Recall in 1997 and 1995, Mission Impossible in 96. So Rob is, is a fantastic effects artist, really is. Uh, cast. Again, I'm just going to read through this because we've talked about Kurt Russell um, a, a lot when we did Big Trouble, right? We got Kurt Russell, Wilford Brimley, TK Carter. Pre-mustache Wilford Brimley. Pre-mustache, pre right? David Clennon, Keith David. Childs, Richard Dysart, Charles Hallahan, Peter Maloney, Richard Mauser, Donald Moffat, um, who plays Gary, a.k.a. World's Greatest Eyebrows, um, <laughs> Joe Polis is Fuchs, Thomas Waits. That That's your cast, right? There's a yeah. couple of other people in there that um, play, you know, the helicopter pilots who are shooting the dog. But really, this is just a group of men stranded on the ice. Okay. For production and development, here's... Look, if you guys want to know anything about this film, 
Watch the documentary, John Carpenter's The Thing, Terror Takes Shape. I believe it's on all of the editions of The Thing that's out there, both 4K and the <laughs> Shot Factory Blu-ray. It's an hour and 23 minutes. It is probably one of the best behind-the-scenes making of documentaries that is out there. It's It'll tell you everything. Mm. Um, we're not even going to try and compete with that thing. <laughs> Uh, so Brad, I'm gonna start with you. Well, well, what one what? one other thing I think yeah, is yeah. iconic about this movie, yes, and that is the movie poster. Yeah, one of the most iconic uh movie posters done by Drew Struzan, um, completed in less than 24 hours, and he had not seen the movie at the time when he did it. Um, the studio just kind of said, Hey, uh, here's a rundown. Um, here it's kind of based on this 1950s movie. Um, yeah, so he he did that. It's, that's a, that's a good point, man. That poster is one of my favorite posters. I it mean, is. it's a simple blue poster, a guy with his head emitting light, and it just says the thing. And another thing I want to bring up is we I, I've talked about physical title screens. This one we don't get the universal typical logo, but then we get this kind of flame thing that happens, and when you watch you learn that they did it by burning a trash bag and that's the trash bag burning away. And then the thing kind of coming out from the fire. So it's such a cool title screen, such a cool poster. It just kind of goes into the art around a movie. Um, also becoming iconic at the time as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it just, I, I, I love the movie poster is so simple and so I mean it's it's perfect. It's so good. Like I see that movie poster, it's like I want to see that movie. It does its job in no time at all. It really is a work of art. I mean, if you go back and look at it, it um it that's what I miss about movie posters. It mm-hmm. doesn't have any of the stars' faces on there. It has a concept. It's selling you on a concept and you're immediately drawn into it. We need more movie posters like that. Unfortunately, we'll never get them because of current movie marketing. But <laughs> Anyways, uh, I don't know how many times you've seen this thing, but let's just say it's in triple digits as well. I think I, oh, God. yeah, I've grown up on this from seeing it in the theater, um, VHS it's on HBO all the time growing up. Um, it's one of those films. I think I posted on the social media post. I've had every, I think the only, uh, version I don't own is the HD DVD. I probably need Why to go get it. I don't know. Why I, not? I need to go find it, but um, I have like four different Blu-ray copies because they changed the artwork on it. Um, a DVD copy, a steel book, every once stuff, in a while, laser yeah. disc. Yeah, yeah. I have the 4K. Um, yeah, it's just it's it's one of those films that I probably own more copies than I should of it. Ah, uh, no. Okay, no. It's, it deserves <laughs> you to have every copy. Ever that's why I made. love you, Brad. My wife would disagree yeah. with you, but I know. But that's why I got you. I'm made. here. I'm here to enable. That's what I do. Uh, and. I'm sure we both watched it uh, in 4K, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. It just gave me the the best reason to open up that 4K and, and throw it in. And Now, you don't have an Atmos or DTS-X setup, right? I don't. Okay. I don't. I have a 4K projector, but I don't have I don't have the sound set up just yet. Okay. I, I have the DTS-X specifications in my theater. And it rocked your balls off, didn't it? Yeah, it did. Um, so <laughs> I just want to put that out there. This new 4K edition... With DTSX, holy cow, it's one of the best 4Ks out there. Fantastic image quality. 
-hmm. And the DTSX, if you have the setup, really, really highlights the sound design. I'll talk about that in a minute. But I want to start with you. Um, how how is it revisiting this film? I mean, again, I wanted to get a bottle of J and B and just <laughs> watch this movie and and get with Kurt Russell the whole time. And, and I I know the cadence of this movie. I, I did not have to watch this for this show because I I know exactly what happens in what order, who dies, who's the monster. Wilford Brimley, this he's out in the, sh- you know, all this stuff. I, I know this movie, um, but even now I, I watch it in some of that creature design and some of the stuff that happens to people. I still have those. Oh shit moments where I'm just like, Oh my God. Like that is still to this day, just so gnarly and so slimy. And the stuff that happens to these guys is awesome. And I, I, I I always have people over in October. Well, I have people over in my house to watch movies a lot, but in October we always do horror movies. And one year we, I did this and I mean, to show this to someone who's never seen it before, it's, it's so much fun to introduce them to this. I mean, the body horror and everything that happens in this movie, it's, it's a brilliantly made movie. It's, I, I don't want to undersell just how I, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to, you know, how do you talk about the thing? Um, oh, I, I agree. I, I think it's funny you say that because I, I don't really care about reaction videos where they're like, Oh, watch my reaction video of the new trailer. Yeah. I do like watching reaction videos of people who have never seen this film. And when they get to a few couple of scenes and watching them go even today, like what in the hell is that? It's fantastic because it has that experience. Yeah, and you forget, like, you don't forget, but, like, just the amount of flamethrower they're using in this movie. Like, I love a flamethrower in a movie. I know it's a stupid thing, but I love a flamethrower in a movie. And I, I get it in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I get it in The Thing. And I love both of those movies. But, yeah, they're using that flamethrower all the time. Kurt Russell is the the freaking man. I, I love McCready as a character. I love Childs as a character. Um, you know, Wilford Brimley is playing kind of off like his normal sort of typecasting that he would go on to become, you know, it, it, it holds up so well. Um, and I don't want to be like, well, you know, the practical effects make it, you know, there, there's still some <laughs> wonkiness to those effects, but they're just, there's a sort of, I don't know how to put it. There's, there's just something about those effects that still get me going and I I'm excited to watch this movie every time I once I'm done with this I'm always like okay that's my favorite John Carpenter film right and I'm like well no it, it's probably Big Trouble in Little China then I go back and I watch Big Trouble in Little China I'm like, no it's definitely Big Trouble in Little China and then I watch Halloween and I'm like no it's probably Halloween no, no is it Escape from New York I'm like no <laughs> I don't know what it is like it, it's just kind of the most recent and now I'm like well, I don't know. Maybe it's the thing because of all the, you know, I'm like, I, I, I don't know. John Carpenter's like that. Like you can have this rotating favorite film and it's usually be the one that you've seen the most recent. Um, I, I, I love every second of this movie. There is not a moment or a scene in this movie that I would cut. I agree. I, it, there's I think, not I one think, wasted 
piece of film in this thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is not a frame in this movie where I'm like, ah, that was unnecessary. It, it, you, you, you get going in this movie and then the dog happens and then all shit breaks loose. Yeah. And then there's a little bit of moments where, you know, things are slowing down a little bit. The guys are trying to figure out who is who and who can I trust? Who can I trust? Oh, maybe Kurt Russell's the bad guy. Is Kurt Russell the bad guy? That would be cool. Well, he's not, but he, that's even better because then he's the hero. I, man, I, 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 I love this movie, and it's not fair. 2011 maybe is a better film than I'm giving it credit for, but when you watch this right after it, you're like, oh, they missed a lot of these points. Again, the, the tone of this movie and the way it is so anti-jump scary is the reason why I like it. And even the music, like the music is not overpowering, but it's still really good. I, I don't know, man. I, I think this is a perfect film there. I, said I, it. I agree with you hundred percent. I mean, I don't know what you can say that hasn't been said about this film. Uh, it's a masterpiece of cinema, uh, especially for the science fiction horror genre. I mean, in 51, we go for science fiction adventure 2011. I think it's science fiction action horror. Action, yep. This one is pure science fiction horror. Hundred uh, percent, and and I'm going to say this too. I, I think I think I've come to this realization, and I'm I'm just going to make a broad statement that's probably wrong. But you know what? I'm I'm going to give it the the choice hour guarantee that it's 100 percent right for my world. It makes total sense why this thing bombed in 1982. Makes total sense. It's a nihilistic. Well, absolutely, absolutely, yes. It would bomb today, though. That that that's another thing I've come to realize. It it's a nihilistic 1970s horror film that 1982 audiences were not ready for and the general public isn't interested in seeing. And I don't think because of those things, because no, they were interested in seeing ET. Yeah. That but kind of people are interested in film. seeing Dr. Strange today. Right. Um, I don't think this would be a box office hit today. Um, it might have seen some success in the seventies, but I think this movie just isn't for the masses um, simply because of its thematic elements and how it ends. And here's the other thing I'm just going to put it out there. I think the only people who are buying this thing today are the eighties and 90 kids who grew up with this film or the true horror fans. Again, the ones who dabble in horror who are like, Oh, I saw lights out or I like the conjuring films. I don't think they'd like this film. Um, they may go, there's some pretty cool special effects, but I, uh, I hate to say this. Anybody coming up, and just not not horror film nerds or or anything that I mean, if you love horror films, you're gonna love this film, right? If you love science fiction films, I think you're gonna love this film. I think the general person who gets interested in films would look at this and go, well, "That's an interesting piece of cinema." John Carpenter's Halloween is better, but I think with the thing, it just has a tone um, that I don't think is going to click with most audiences in any decade, maybe outside of the seventies. I don't know. What do you think about that statement? No, I agree. Um, I, yeah. Cause I wonder like the average movie person and obviously we are not average movie people because we, we have a podcast and we have a collection that's laughable (laughs) and like, Oh, I could retire, but no, I have all these movies. Look at me. Um, and I think, because like e- even like my my neighbors that, that that I watch movies with, I said, "Hey, let's watch the thing." 
And they're like, what's that? And I'm like, yeah. how do you not know about <laughs> I, one of the greatest movies I agree, ever man. made? I agree. And it's a lot shocking. of people don't, a lot of people, I think, I think we assume in the circles we hang out with, mm-hmm. everybody just assumes this is a masterpiece. I am totally surprised, even from uh, my kids' friends, how many people have never seen this film of even that age or demographic. I think it's it's just lost. And every time I see a new edition come out, I'm like, oh, that's the same people who have bought the other five copies or buying that one, i.e. you and me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I just, I don't know. I, I, I run across people who are discovering film today and they go, The Exorcist is boring. I'm like, are you, are you kidding me? That, that's a masterpiece of of cinema just in general. No, no, no. It's too boring. It's not really scary at all. Oh I, God. I, I kind of, well, feel... you forget that that movie opens up in like Egypt. You're like, why are we in Egypt again? Yeah, I know, oh, but yeah. it's good. It's good storytelling. <laughs> yeah. But I, I would look at the thing and go, I think a lot of people would go, eh, it's all right. I mean, some of the, it's, the effects are cool. Yep. Never seen that before. And I love watching the reaction videos and I love people who are going, Oh my God, that was really good. I I would have never watched this on my own had I not been shooting some YouTube video where somebody forced me to sit down to see it. But I still, you put this thing in the theater today. I don't care what kind of commercial you shoot for it, or even if you have a cool poster, um, like they did originally, it's still bomb. Well, yeah, it didn't help at the time. Yeah. So, um, and I, I want to talk about the sound real quick. So that that DTS soundtrack. <laughs> so uh, here's the thing that I want to talk about. The thing as good as um, Potine's effects are the sound design and the people in the sound department elevate the scenes with their use of the sound effects and and mixing. And there's one of the best things they do is restrain themselves. It is, but there's, there's two things that always get to me, like how good it is. And man, when it's coming through all your speakers, (laughs) you, you like wet your pants, man, but it's the alien hissing when it happens. Oh, it sounds so good. And it really elevates what you're seeing on screen. And then the other thing that sounds crystal clear and it makes my skin crawl and it's not what's That's what they should have called 2011. The other thing. (laughs) The other thing. Um, That's that's good. Uh, Cracking bones. When they're cracking, oh my goodness. Uh, It adds to the grotesque like nature of what you're seeing either through an autopsy screen or scene or um, if something is happening, you hear the bones crunch. I'm like, you're like, oh oh my gosh. It's... it's the sound design does not get enough credit. I mean, everybody talks about, you know, Rob's special effects. The special effects are great, but what makes them great is the sound design that is occurring with the special effects. And I think that's way more evident um, when you hear it in, in a proper like uh, home theater setup. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's part of what uh, special effects are for, you know, you have to see it. And then if you hear it, it also just elevates things so much. Um, you know, I, when I initially saw this, did I pick up on like the Reaganism stuff in it? Like, no, of course not. Did I pick up on the AIDS stuff? Of course not. Like, but then you go back and you, I look at it and I was as almost a 40 year old man. And I'm like, wow, not only is this movie like saying something, but it's really saying something. And, and John Carpenter's fear of, of what was going to happen in 1982. Um, I like going back and, and looking at that political commentary that's buried in a film about a shape-shifting alien you're like wow that, that that's masterful um and it's something that i'm i, I miss today i miss like some sharp i wouldn't say satire but criticism that's buried that you know you might not see the first time that that it pays you off 
after repeat viewing. I think this movie is one of those movies that it just gets better and better every time I see it. And I'm like, as much as I like it now, I want to watch it again because I know I'm going to like it more <laughs> the next time. And that's the sign of a great movie. Was I was I on board with this thing the first time I saw it? I don't know. I was probably eight years old when I first saw this movie. Um, and I think about like my son almost being six. I'm like, what? <laughs> there's no way in hell I would let him watch this movie in two years. But, you know, whatever. Um, I wanted to ask you a question yeah. because I was not old enough to know, but when was the turn on this movie as a no, this movie is actually a masterpiece. Everyone was wrong. I don't know. I, I've for me, was it, was it like when it came out on home video or I really, because, for me, it became the, and I, I'm just talking about from my personal experience. Cause my dad took me to everything. So I like all the movies that you listed. It's like, yep, every Saturday we were watching a movie, maybe two, right? So we saw everything. I remember seeing this one and just, oh my god, it it blew my mind. Um, and I don't remember any of my friends had seen it. Now, when it hit HBO and it was playing on constant rotation, um, and it hit the video cassette, it was a um, mainstay of viewing every weekend for kids my age at that point. So the, the 12, 13, 14 year olds were just going nuts over this thing. Cause we were watching it all the time and you were, you were fast forwarding to this sequence and you're just watching this and, and you were talking about it at school. But I really think it was the kids um, like of my age growing up, as soon as they got to a point where they start talking about film and talking about film criticism and are becoming film critics themselves, they're the ones that said, hey, this film that I grew up on that totally blew my mind, it's so much better than what everybody thought in 1982. Like, I, I think, <laughs> this sounds terrible. I think the people that reviewed it in 82 still thought it was a piece of junk. And once they died off, the ones <laughs> who grew up with it are the ones who became the champions of it. Um, and I, again, I just, I can't, I can't underestimate how many people just didn't like this thing, even in the fan magazines and everything else when it came out. However, those 10 year olds and those 12 year olds who were discovering on an HBO and watching it over and over again and dissecting it and who's really the thing at the end and, and what happened. I mean, we talked about it all the time. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that once they become of age, started championing it. And that's why I make that comment. Like every time they release this thing. It's the, it's the same people buying it over and over again. It's those HBO kids. Yeah. I, I, cause by the time I was really getting into film, this thing that had already been like, no, it is a bona fide classic that you have to watch. And, you know, me being a, like a sci-fi kid growing up, it was like this and Blade Runner or like, no, like, why, 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 why did not everyone think that these were so great when they came out? Um, I would just, I think now again, I'm just, I'm not, I didn't do a poll, national poll or anything of that nature. Um, teenage kids today, I don't think know about this film whatsoever. Now my kids do because I forced it on them. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and I'm happy that they love it so much. Cause even when I watched the 4k the other night, my, my son is texting me cause he's with his friends. He's like, how's that 4k? How's that DTS? What, what's it look like? And, oh, I'm going to watch it when I get home. I'm like, yeah, whatever, man. It's, it's fantastic. 
So they're real hyped on it. And I love the fact that my kids are trying to get their friends to watch this stuff. But the general consensus is, I think for that age group, nobody knows about this film. Unless you're in the horror community or you mm-hmm. like that kind of, you're going to go back and see the classics. So they're watching this one, but the general teenage moviegoer um, is not paying attention to this thing. Whereas me growing up, you saw the thing cause it was on HBO and, and you loved it. Yeah. That was like, I think a benefit of maybe not a benefit, but of having no choice. Right. Yeah. When we were growing up, if it was on HBO, it was a movie and I was watching it. And at some point in time I was making the turn on it. Like, Oh, this is, this is a good movie. Cause I get to watch a movie. So therefore it's good. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm, I'm sure HBO was showing this movie all the time. And it was just like, at first I'm just loving the fact that these dudes are turning into these creatures um, and catching everything on fire. I'm sure that's why I loved it. And then of course you come around and you get older and you see it again. And it of course morphs into this whole different thing, but it makes me, it makes me sad. I, I, I don't know. I don't know, man. Like I, if people, cause I want the medium to continue, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. And I want films to be like this to be made. I want, challenge they'll never be made like this again. science fiction films to be made but not not in this country no no it's it's difficult well, to let me let me back up not in well, this country but don't you think studio. everything is everything is cyclical like it might come back around like it, it, I, I feel like we are at a point now where film is so vanilla that the pendulum is going to swing at some point in time like we're going to go through that 60s and 70s i hope so i love the 50s filmmaking and i love the films that came out of the 50s like but you look at it and then you look at what came next and you're like okay like you had to go through that period to get to the 70s where it was like everything that came out was like this revolution it was completely different nobody had seen it before um and and the thing is it's a it's a 70s movie that came out in 1982 like this is a 70s movie kind of like with Blade Runner like the the way they kind of make them and, and the way they feel they feel like 70s movies they were just three years late um maybe I, I don't know I mean I'm I'm I here's my theory it's uneducated and it's just one guy's opinion so take it for what you will but I don't think we'll ever ever see the films that we've seen of the seventies and even the eighties anymore. I heard this theory and I think Tarantino talked about it where we're in the fifties. Cause if you think about the fifties and how everything vanilla was, and it was sort of the reaction to the social um, socio-political aspect of what was going on. Yeah, We wanted to, well, we were coming out of the war. We wanted to feel good. And all of our movies were like popcorn, feel good movies essentially. Yep, yep. And then the sixties and seventies came counter culture, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking about it from like a filmmaker perspective. Uh, we don't have a Stanley Kubrick anymore. We don't even have a Steven Spielberg anymore. We don't have auteurs anymore, in my opinion. Well, we have like P.T. Anderson. He's kind of maybe the last, you know. Yeah, I get your point. Yeah. The problem is, I think, again, uneducated opinion, just some guy just guessing, is people are growing up on the internet and Netflix and have full access to everything. And when you make a film, you're making a film based on the film that influenced you and all the films that you saw. Whereas auteurs in the seventies and eighties, yeah, they were influenced by some films. Carpenter was, was clearly influenced by Howard Hawks. No doubt about it. 
Yeah. But I don't think John Carpenter, all he did was ingest film and then go out and create film. I think he was interested in art and storytelling and those aspects of it and had a unique vision. I think the problem with the internet and, and our social socio-political environment, and everything else, it, it doesn't allow, especially in the movie industry, um, for that type of vision anymore because you got to right market now. it. I don't think it'll ever, I don't think it ever will. <laughs> it, it will, unless you're going in true independent cinema. But again, this is just me being nihilistic and pessimistic about today's, um, landscape. You, you can't get the films from the seventies or even, you know, the thing from 82 because there's no, there's no tolerance for that type of storytelling in the mass community. Well, there wasn't tolerance for it in nineteen eighty two. This movie was reviled and it didn't. We didn't make have any the money. internet. The internet but you had shuts. these magazines the that were inter- supposed to be. Nobody the was reading that of, stuff. Nobody yeah, was reading okay. that stuff. The internet shuts everything down. And it's it's the minority that shuts it all down. So as long as the internet and that minority is out there voicing it in such a way, you will never have this stuff again. Just one man's opinion. Okay. The internet's no, a beautiful I- thing. Don't get me wrong, but it also creates a environment. Brad, you and I have talked about it even on this podcast. There are some movies we'll never review. There are some opinions we'll never share simply because of the environment we live in. And we're not bad people. It's just that (laughs) it's like we won't touch that topic because of its sensitivity. Yeah. At one point in time, we were going to do Haywire. And it was like, we're not doing Haywire. We're not doing Haywire. No way. Yeah. Mm -mm. Yeah. Not, do, not touching it. So yeah. that's if if we're like that and we're creating some stupid little pocket. It's not stupid. <laughs> I'm just saying it's. <laughs> hey, we have 100 episodes. We've got 100 episodes out there. we got some amazing people we interact with. But I'm, I'm just looking at it from this standpoint and just saying um, some of the boldness and braveness and breaking the stereotype of storytelling. And it, it's not commercially viable. It's not politically viable. It's not. It's not viable as long as the internet is out there and you face some group or organization taking that content or your views. Um, I mean, think about how many times you read something and go, well, it, did they really say that? Or was that taken out of context? Or I yeah. mean, it's just, and and again, I'm, I'm not getting on a soapbox here. I just, I think realistically, anybody who thinks that it's like, oh, this is cyclical. We're getting, nope, we're in, we're going into new territory. Could be amazing territory. It's never going to be the 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 movies of the seventies and eighties ever. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Ah, I don't know. I'm put, hopeful. I'm hopeful you're, too, but I'm. You're the nihilist of this. How, when did you become the nihilist? <laughs> when it when it comes to the view of um, cinema. Mm-hmm. domestic American cinema, it, it doesn't have a voice anymore. And if it, and right, well, right me, now, let, well, <laughs> hold on, let me put it this way. It has a voice, but it's muted. Let me put it that way. Yeah. Or it's turned way down. Yes. It's, yes. Turned yes. way down. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think that's a problem, but it's really hard to test the boundaries of anything for fear of some type of repercussion on anything. Yeah. But got to play it safe. The way society works is it's like this pendulum. We always overcorrect. 
I, I, I hope so. I really do. I mean, you have well, Barack let me back Obama. I don't Donald want it to overcorrect. Like I just want common sense. Anyways, let's get back to how awesome yeah. this movie is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, you're um, right. So I don't know how you are. Every time I revisit something, especially like uh, this film, there's always something that stands out. And since I watched the 2011 version before this one, and I really came to the conclusion, like if you've, if you've never come to these films, like the 2011 and 1982, you can't watch the 2011 first because um, that dog in the beginning is so creepy and it's terrifying, um, which is why you can't watch the prequel until after 82, because that dog really adds to the suspense of the first 20 minutes. Yeah, because, you know, that helicopter opens up and you're like, why, why are they chasing this dog? Yeah. What's up with this dog? It's just a dog because you don't know that a alien could hide inside of a dog. And then when it happens, it it. I mean, it still kind of gets me like, man, that dog goes through a lot of stuff. Uh, but yeah, you're, you're right. I, I think it definitely would ruin that first like 15 minutes. Yeah, I've seen. I mean, if I had never seen that, I think you made the comment like, well, you're just waiting for the dog to do something because, you know, it's, you know, it's an alien. Uh-huh. Uh, whereas the 1982 version, when that dog goes into the kennel, sits down and is looking straight ahead, you're like, holy cow, that's creepy just that one sequence. Um, and then you get to the dog transformation. And I, I remember to this day when that happened sitting in theater, I mean, my mind was blown. Like how, how did they do that? Did, did they really take a dog's head? No, they couldn't have. <laughs> like, they couldn't do that. Yeah. Well, um, I did not, I don't, I don't, I don't remember seeing the no animals were harmed during the making of this film. So yeah, I don't know. it's crazy. Um, and you forget how just wet this movie is like how wet the, Oh, absolutely. The thing is, and the other thing that gets me every time, because I think it's just a masterful stroke of tension and suspense that has this amazing payoff is the uh, defibrillator scene that ends up turning into the spider head scene. I don't think any movie has come close to a what the fuck moment um, than that sequence right there. Oh, when his head falls off and turns into a spider? No, just when his when his. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. I mean, that yeah. that's the icing on the cake after his hands go through that guy's chest and it gets oh the chest eats him yes yep dude that that whole sequence um even to this day my eyes just widen and i'm like i I can't believe i'm seeing this and as many times as i've watched behind the scenes and how they do it uh it's just amazing to me it really is yeah i was thinking the perfect double feature is the blob remake followed by the thing absolutely you're like oh give me that give me that all day no i i agree uh, I, I think you said it already. Um, I, I mean, I love the film. If we're grading it, it's 10 out of 10, right? Uh-huh. I think it's Carpenter's masterpiece. So Big Trouble in Little China will always be my favorite John Carpenter film and probably my favorite Kurt Russell film. But this movie is Carpenter's best work of art, in my opinion. Yeah. I even prefer well, because this. I, I say Pulp Fiction is my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie, but I think Inglorious Bastards is his best made movie. I agree with you hundred yeah. percent. Um, yeah. so I, I would think that this film, if you were to rank all of his movies, I, to me, this is, this is the best thing he's ever done, even though he has some bangers. Right. Uh, but I will always watch big trouble in little China over this one, but I will always sit back and say <laughs> that the thing is his masterpiece. So, yeah, I, I think big, big trouble, in little China is way more fun to watch than the thing. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I like that nihilistic sort of, 
again, I love sneaking political commentary in, in your film. It is it's I, not super overt. I, 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 that's what I do miss kind of in it. And don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to put a blanket statement out there in saying that political commentary and social commentary doesn't exist in film today. What I'm saying is in the mass market, when something gets released like to 3000 screens, um, sociopolitical topics can be scary and what horror movies do really well is sometimes take that fear element and incorporate it into the story and come out with some very interesting concepts. I don't think we have enough of that anymore. It does exist and it pops up every once in a while, but it really seemed like in the 70s and early 80s, um, it was there a lot. And yeah. I think we've lost it. And and I hope you're right, Brad. Like, I, 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 I love some people go, they feel really uncomfortable talking about politics or religion or something. I don't, as long as you're coming from a place of you can be open, take the other person's opinion and not like jump down their throat. And that's what I've always liked about us talking about this stuff. Um, and I hope film does come around and embrace, you know, that boldness to talk about some taboo subjects and do it with a mass audience for right now. I think it's muted or turned down very low and it should be a little bit louder um, especially with all the crap that's going on in the world. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I honestly, I, I think there can be some really good dialogue and messages um, with more movies like the thing, quite honestly. For sure. So I want to tell you why I did not read the book because I played the 2002 third person survivor horror game oh. called the thing for the original Xbox. And I believe ps2 yeah i have the ps2 version um, yeah so it is like a third person shooter um set in that world uh there's a dossier at the beginning of the game that i found that literally says that childs died of hyperthermia and mccready was uh his whereabouts were unknown so it literally picks up right after this movie ends and it was um endorsed by john carpenter himself it's a really cool game um it you know Video games uh, don't age as well usually as as movies, but this one was it was fun to revisit. Um, I had forgotten that I had it, and I went through my old box of stuff that I still haven't put up on a shelf yet, and there it was. And I was like, "Oh hell yeah!" Um, it was fun. It was fun, and it was just another thing. It was like, God, this idea and this property are so good. I'm just disappointed that we don't have the thing in another location, right? Like right. let's move out of Antarctica and let's go, let's go somewhere else. Um, Los Angeles, like predator Two. Yeah. Like let's go to predator. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he's fighting drug cartel and yeah, all this stuff, but yeah. Yeah. Give me Danny Glover. Um, yeah. Really cool game. I was glad I, I, I went through it. So um, again, if you're like us and, and want to do all things, the thing uh, play that game. Yeah, I, want, I wanted to go back and read the comic series because there was a two-issue series that picks up after the film, and then they did a four-issue series after that one because it was so successful. I have them, didn't get time to, to go back and read them, but uh, I decided to to read um, Frozen Hell. So I'm, I'm I'm glad we tried to cover like different mediums of the same story. Uh, I, I think it's a really great franchise. I mean, I, I think a few episodes ago we were talking about best horror franchises and um, I, I think evil dead is the best. Uh, I, I think this one's up there. I mean, for three films, two of them being just freaking classic masterpiece mm -hmm. cinema viewing experiences and one being okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, you, you yeah, your average is pretty high. Heck yeah, yeah it for is. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, anything else about the 82 version? Go buy it's that 4K, people. If, yeah, please. It, it's it's awesome. It's awesome. And it's perfect. It's a perfect film. It's, I personally, and I, I think this is my problem, is like when I'm ranking my directors, Carpenter is always the one I kind of leave out of my top five. And then I go through his filmography. I'm like, wait a minute. He's got That's be. a perfect film. That's yeah. a perfect film. That's a perfect film. That's a perfect film. I think he has four perfect films. I agree. I think Escape from New York is a perfect film. I think actually I might even say they live as a perfect film too. It's like that one grows on me uh, yeah, every time, every time I, I, I see watch it. it. Yeah. Yep. A little and bit more. That is, I think when you take away anything from John Carpenter, it's when you watch one of his movies and you watch it again, it will be better the next time you watch it. I every time. Yeah. And I've seen this film. I don't know, a hundred plus times. And every time I watch it, I, like you said, enjoy it a little bit more and I'm always getting something new out of it. And, uh, I can't, I can't say that about a lot of movies or directors. I've seen the exorcist 137 times and it keeps getting better. Every time I see it, Troy. <laughs> yeah. The Beetlejuice. There yep. you go. Um, what, what else? I, you, you, you want to go back and grade these? Should we? Sure. Sure. Let's, what, what are we grading them on? I don't know. I, so 1951 is the, uh, the thing from another world. Is it a bomb? No, absolutely not. Okay. I agree with you on that one. So here, here's the one I'm curious about. Yeah. 2011's the thing. Is it a bomb? Kind of. Um, <laughs> I guess I have to pick a side. I know what side you're going to pick. Uh, I'm going to say it's a bomb. All right. I, I'm going to. Oh boy. I'm going to, I'm going to say it's not a bomb. I, I if I, I was going to grade it, I would say it's a four out of 10. Yeah. I'd grade a little bit higher. I'd say it's probably a six out of 10, six out of 10. Yeah. So it's a five, it's a five out of 10 movie. It's a perfectly average middle of the road movie. Yep. Yeah. It's, 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 it's another creature feature from, you could do way worse. You could I, do way worse, but you could do way better. We did way worse when we talked about yes. Hellboy 2019. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I think the, yeah, not a bomb, not, not a, bomb. a bomb. Okay. Perfect. Cool, cool. Film. Well, what, what are we talking about next week? Um, yeah, next week is my pick. Yeah. Um, and so for episode one Oh one, we're also doing another remake. We are doing the Power Rangers remake from 2017. Oh, boy. Um, you were probably way too old for the Power Rangers. I, I um, was. It was a, I think they were, they were popular when I was in college. Yeah. So when I was about 10 or 11, the Power Rangers were probably the biggest thing in the entire world. That whole inception of the, of the Power Rangers show is pretty fascinating. So we'll touch on that. And then we'll touch on that remake reboot movie okay. um, with Brian Cranston as all people in there. Uh, saw it in the theater. So it'll be curious to revisit. Yep. Um, okay. Get ready to hear a lot of things about jerking off a bull. Cause that is a plot point in that movie. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I didn't make the goddamn movie. Troy. I, know, I know. I totally forgot about it. And now you said it. I'm like, Oh boy, we're next week's going to be interesting. Um, okay. So Brad, if anybody wants to send their thoughts, comments on any of the three films we talked about tonight, or give us recommendations on what we should be watching for the rest of the next hundred episodes, how do they get a hold of us? Yeah, that's not a bomb pod at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Like a lot of people do. Um, yeah, I, Troy, I want to thank you, uh, for, for going along with this, um, I was going to say secretly, but it's not so secretly. Uh, 
one of the reasons I do this is so I can talk to you every week and it's what we were going to do anyway uh, through text messages. So this just felt right. Um, and it's one of my highlights of my week. Uh, you and I run this like a business. That <laughs> it's not a business, but we, we do. do run it like that. And we you know I, I wouldn't want to be a business partner with anybody else besides you. So I appreciate uh, your investment of time and it's uh, it's been a ride and I've, I've loved every second of it. It doesn't feel like work to me. I know it's just, it's a hobby. Um, and I, I, I love it. I am surprised how many hours you and I put into this on a weekly basis, but like you said, it doesn't feel like work. And, and to be honest, um, two things that are amazing about this whole experience. A, you and I have an excuse to watch movies together and talk about them. And then B, when you take a step back and all the people that we've just met over the last like two years that we've never known before. And we are now interacting with on a regular basis um, and other podcast shows, but not even about the shows. It's really about the people. Mm -hmm. Um, I super blessed. Um, And I can't thank everybody enough for just taking time out of your schedule to listen to us. Um, and you know, please keep interacting with us. We, we enjoy it. We are, I think we're pretty good about responding in a timely manner. Things don't sit in the inbox too long, but, um, no, we, we do this because we like to talk to each other, but I think it's slowly becoming one of those things where it's like now, even if we wanted to quit, we can't because we've got all these connections and interactions with people who are playing along with us. Yeah. And it's so much fun. So, yeah. um, yeah. And, and like, if, if, if we talk about someone on this show or we talk about their podcast or we have them as a guest, first and foremost, those people are good people. Like we're, they're our friends. Their secondary thing is like, Oh, they have a podcast, but first and foremost, they're a good person and yeah. they're good to us. That's why they're on here. Not their podcast is second. It's always because we like them as a person. So they get our stamp of approval um, anytime someone comes on here. So a hundred percent. And I, I just want to send a big thank you. I'm not going to go through and read the list, um, but thank you for everybody who's taking time to to join the conversation with us. Um, and thank you to everybody who's talked about us on any of these social media platforms or other podcasts or anything else. We we're super grateful. Thanks for all the invites that we get for, you know, to be on other shows. Um, it's been so much fun. Um, and, uh, Hey, look, the, the next hundred, I can guarantee they're going to be just as entertaining. Um, Brad and I will have a ton of horrible, bad impressions. I'm, we're working on a few right now, probably for next week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I can't thank everybody enough for, for just being along for the ride. And I'm looking forward to, to keep this going, man. Absolutely. I was going to do my Andrew Dice Clay, but you know what? I, I, I won't. I'll refrain. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, boy. There it was. Uh, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for listening to, man, this, this one's been a long one, but it's been super fun. And sorry if we derailed with our political and social commentary today, but, you know, that's all part of the charm, right? And um, don't take any of our opinions as facts. They're just opinions. Um, But, hey, look, I hope you're having an awesome week. And join us next week when we're, well, I know I'm going to learn all about the Power Rangers because I don't know anything about the Power Rangers. So, Brad, I'm looking forward to it. Now I'm going to teach you all about the Power Rangers, buddy. Awesome. Uh, Don't lose your head. (laughs) 